Greetings all, Vanessa Cardi here, welcoming you to April 2023 edition of Right on Prime. And joining me in the co-host seat is the one and only Dr. Adrian Siliam. Great to have you back at the top of the show. Hey, Vanessa. Great to be here. And we're going to jump right in with this uh, because I believe you have a case for us. I uh, sure do. So let me set the scene for you here. I'm in uh, the emergency department where I work, and I go to pick up the chart for the next patient, and it's a female patient. She's in her late 30s. So I read the triage note. It says she's got symptoms of a UTI for more than six weeks. She's been treated with antibiotics like on four or five occasions, and she comes back because her symptoms are ongoing. So I can see that she's already had a urinalysis done at triage. That was completely normal. She also had a pregnancy test that was negative. Well, now I want to know about her symptoms. I mean, when did all this start? What other associated symptoms did she have? If she had any, did she have like fever, flank pain, vomiting, any vaginal discharge? And, and I guess a sexual history as well. Were there any new sexual partners? It's been going on for about eight weeks. I think the triage note said six weeks, but it, it seemed like it was going on for a bit longer. So about eight weeks. The symptoms were pretty constant, like every day she was feeling it, but some days were better than others, and today was a particularly bad day, so that's why she came in. She describes dysuria, but she was kind of saying it's like more of a super pubic kind of pelvic pain that she was feeling, and she kind of couldn't really describe it. She was saying like it was kind of just associated with her bladder. She could feel it somehow associated with her bladder. She's urinating more frequently. She does have some ur urgency as well, but it seemed to be more frequency was her problem. There was no fever, there was no vomiting, she had no flank pain, there was no vaginal discharge, no new sexual partner, she'd been married for 15 years. But she does mention that in the past like few months, as she said, when she had sex, it was quite painful to her. That was going on a few months before her urinary symptoms started. And then what about any prior urine cultures? She's been treated several times for UTIs, so I'm assuming that at least a few cultures have been sent off in that process? Right, yeah, there had been. At my hospital, it was the first time that she had been there. But I could just see through the EMR that she had, I could see two other cultures that she had done, and they were both negative. Okay, well, based on that information, this doesn't sound really like a UTI. Yeah, so a few thoughts. I mean, number one, could this be an STI? She sounds very low risk uh, for STI. But I mean, weirder things have happened. So that was on my differential, although I think it's pretty unlikely. I was thinking, could she have some sort of bladder pathology, like a bladder tumor? Uh, again, unlikely. Maybe something like candida vaginitis, but there was no discharge or vulvar symptoms. Uh, so again, pretty unlikely. The big glaring diagnosis that I'm thinking about is interstitial cystitis. Definitely. I mean, it's what I think about when I'm seeing patients who've had many UTIs or what seem like UTIs that just don't get better with antibiotics and then also negative urine cultures. So what were your next steps in this case? Background. All right, so first off, I did an exam. And she did have some suprapubic tenderness, some kind of you know pelvic uh, tenderness. But there's nothing, you know, in her peritoneal signs, no flank tenderness or anything like that. Her vulva and her vagina were completely normal. I didn't note any discharge. We did some swabs for candida and trichomonas. We also sent off a urine, chlamydia, and gonorrhea. Um, and then I, I sent her off for a pelvic ultrasound as well, just given her tenderness on the exam. I just wanted to make sure there was no, you know, adnexal or uterine pathology or anything like that that could be causing her pain. So this is in the ED. I'm able to get an ultrasound fairly quickly. So while she's waiting to go for her ultrasound, I'm like, look, why don't you Google interstitial cystitis? Just see what, see what you think about that and tell me what you think. Tell me if that's what you think is going on. Okay, so what did the ultrasound show? So, I mean, not surprisingly, it came back completely normal. Uh, her uterus had next, everything was completely normal. So I obviously don't have urine culture back yet, or I don't have her STI tests back just yet. They did end up coming back negative a few days later. But anyway, I go back to see her. I tell her the results of the ultrasound. 
And by this point, she has enough time to, you know, Google it and kind of research a little bit about interstitial cystitis on her phone. And she's like, this is for sure what I have, 100%. She's like, this is exactly what I have. And so we talk about, you know, management. We kind of talk about how there's no perfect treatment. But she was kind of happy just to have a diagnosis. And the few times that I've given this diagnosis to patients, it's, it's always the same kind of story, same sort of response where patients are like, you know what, I'm just really happy to have an answer. I'm happy to have an answer as to what's going on. And then, you know, I can work with that. And this is a great case because it's so nice when a patient leaves satisfied, even if we don't have a magic bullet for it. So do you want to review some highlights about interstitial cystitis? And first off, of course, we should mention that the preferred term is now actually bladder pain syndrome or BPS. But interstitial cystitis is still widely used and often used kind of interchangeably with the term BPS. Right. I hope you don't mind if I just keep calling it interstitial cystitis. It is a misnomer. There's no actual cystitis. There's no inflammation of the bladder. But I just can't wrap my head around BPS, bladder pain syndrome. Symptoms. In terms of symptoms with interstitial cystitis or BPS, they're pretty much what you mentioned with your patient, right? Like she was kind of a classic presentation. Yeah, exactly. She kind of like read the textbook on interstitial cystitis. So the symptoms are kind of like cystitis symptoms. And I guess that's probably why it's called interstitial cystitis, because the symptoms are, are very consistent with it. You know, patients have super pubic pain. They have urinary frequency, urgency, dysuria. They have nocturia as well. But these symptoms have to be present for more than six weeks. So that's the big difference there. A lot of patients are going to have pain associated with bladder filling. So they'll have that urinary frequency and urgency, but that's more related to wanting to relieve the fullness of their bladder as opposed to actually like inflammation in their bladder and they have to go pee all the time. Now, patients are also going to have other associated symptoms. Oftentimes they'll have, you know, pelvic pain. A lot of times there might be some vulvar or vaginal pain as well. And dyspareunia is also really common with interstitial cystitis. And the majority of patients with this are female, is that right? Yeah. So men can get interstitial cystitis, but it's much more common in women. About 90% of patients are women. And I should also mention here that other conditions like migraines, IBS, and fibromyalgia are associated with, uh, with IC. Investigations. So what about investigations for this? Do we need to work all these patients up with imaging and or cystoscopy? So this is a clinical diagnosis. There's no one specific test that's going to be needed here, aside from a urinalysis and a urine culture, which, I mean, by the time you're seeing the patient, I'm sure they've probably already had, you know, multiple urinalyses and urine cultures. Other things to consider are STI testing. You could consider doing imaging like an ultrasound for pelvic pathology, but it's not necessary. And then cystoscopy is also not 100% necessary, but you should consider it especially if you have someone who is having blood on the urinalysis and you're worried about a bladder mass, then they should probably be referred for a cystoscopy. But again, it's not necessary to make this diagnosis. Treatment. Okay, let's talk about treatment. My understanding is that there's no one perfect treatment, but that it's more of a multimodal approach. So why don't you tell us more about that? Right, yeah. So you want to educate your patients. Uh, this is key. You want to counsel them about decreasing fluid intake, especially around bedtime. You could talk to them about having time to void. So, you, you know, instruct them that they should probably go pee every hour, or every two hours or whatever it is to avoid their bladder filling. So having frequent voids. Some patients may find certain dietary triggers. So like things like caffeine, alcohol, citrus, spicy foods. So you can counsel them that they could keep a journal and see if there's any particular triggers that they're finding and to avoid those. And I think I've heard that pelvic physiotherapy might be helpful as well. Is that correct? Yeah, definitely. Now, pelvic physiotherapy is a bit more specialized. Not every physical therapist can do this. 
So patients might have to do a little bit of research or if you have a list of, of physiotherapists that do this, uh, definitely helpful for the patients, yeah. For pharmacological management, you can start with the basics, things like acetaminophen, anti-inflammatories can be helpful. There is some evidence for amitriptyline. So you could start at a dose of 10 to 50 milligrams at bedtime. And interestingly, antihistamines, the most studied one here is hydroxyzine, can also be beneficial. And the dose for hydroxyzine is 10 to 25 milligrams QHS. Again, it might be helpful. There's a medication called pentasan polysulfate. Have you heard of that before? No, I haven't. No, it's just come up in uh, literature review that I've done for this. But basically, it can be beneficial. There's some evidence for it. To be honest, I've never heard of this medication. I'm a bit hesitant to start that. So I'm going to leave that one for the urologist. And then if symptoms persist, there are other, you know, surgical urological options. So things like intravesical injections of heparin or lidocaine. There's something called hydrodistension where the urologist can kind of distend the bladder with cystoscopy. And sometimes that can help as well. But again, this is down the line. And by this point, urology is definitely involved. And they're going to need to be helping us with, uh, with these management options. Yeah, this is definitely the realm of shared care at that point. But that was great. That was a great review. It's really good because this is something that I think we see quite a lot of and that we definitely miss the first several times the patients come in, which is normal because we assume that it's a UTI. It sounds like a UTI, but when you get these patients with recurrent symptoms, negative cultures, nothing's helping, then you've got to think about interstitial cystitis or bladder pain syndrome. now onto the rest of the show where we are pleased to welcome back a great bunch of contributors. We've got some really good pieces this month. Yeah, I agree. What was your favorite piece from uh, this month, Cardi? Oh, that's tough to say. But I think one was definitely Hobie and Heidi chatting about vaccine hesitancy and how to approach this topic in a way that's helpful with patients. It can be such a difficult conversation to have. So having some tips and tricks for navigating this topic was very much appreciated. Also, I really like the piece with Aisha Khatib talking about fever and a returning traveler. We need to remember that fevers can be the harbinger of many a gnarly process, not only COVID or malaria. And Aisha does a great job creating a really sensible approach to this very complicated topic. And of course, this is only a teaser. There's a lot more great topics. And of course, there's PCMA. So sit back, enjoy, and uh, we'll catch up with you on the other side. Coming to you from semi-scenic Loma Linda, California, it's Reviews and Perspectives with Dr. Hobart Lee. Hobie, hello. It's good to see you, and I hope you're ready to tackle a big topic today. A big topic? Okay. Uh, let me gear up. <laughs> but Okay, I'm ready. Let's do it. Today's topic is vaccine hesitancy. Oh, you had to go there. <laughs> <laughs> I did. I did. You knew it was going to happen eventually. If we talk every month, this is eventually going to come up. I know, but this is going to be so big. I'm such a big topic. Okay. I, I agree with you. It's something that we're seeing more and more of. So uh, let's talk about it. Yeah, yeah, you're right. We're seeing a lot more vaccine hesitancy. That can be people who are like, very clearly anti any kind of vaccine versus people who just have a lot more questions and maybe delaying vaccination or very hesitant to get them. And you know what? Vaccine hesitancy goes all the way back to the 1850s when smallpox vaccinations came out. It's long lived. As long as we've had vaccines, people have been hesitant. But I think it's fair to say that there is a lot more vaccine hesitancy now than there used to be. I mean, I think when we think of Andrew Wakefield and Jenny McCarthy and how they scared everybody that if they vaccinated their kids, they'd get autism, that increased a lot of parents' resistance. And then there's COVID. 
and all the vaccine issues around there. And I've never seen vaccine hesitancy like this since the pandemic. Yeah, me neither. I mean, I think there's always been those who are skeptical for vaccines for various reasons. But now it seems that there's almost like a pandemic of skepticism. And that's given rise to the return of vaccine-preventable diseases. You know, I think measles and polio, to just name two of the ones that we've kind of seen crop up in the news, outbreaks of measles and outbreaks of polio. There's lots of reasons why somebody might choose not to be vaccinated or to delay vaccination. And we'll get into those. But first, why don't we talk about a general approach to these discussions? How can we approach these discussions Keeping in mind that the end goal is to help patients become willingly vaccinated. Yeah, so the first thing, and this is probably the hardest thing, is to be respectful to your patients and their views. You don't have to agree with them on everything, but getting into arguments with patients and like shaming them doesn't really help. And it kind of closes like the door to future conversations. And then I think we all acknowledge that really hurts the trust between the physician and the patient. So I would say, try to check your ego at the door. It's not about, you know, us being right and them being wrong, but it's really about trying to understand your patient's motivations and worldview when working with those to help them achieve optimal health. I'll mention, I heard a talk by a physician who was working in a global health setting. Mm. And he said that oftentimes when he was teaching other students there or seeing patients, that they would make decisions that were very different than he would make. And it was really easy for him to get judgmental. And one of the things that he taught himself to say was, what is the very good reason this patient is making a decision that I don't understand? Mm -hmm. And what I love about that is you're going with a sense of curiosity And you're assuming that the patient has a great reason why they're doing something that you disagree with, right? It's not that they're not educated or they're making a bad decision. They actually have a very logical and good reason. It's just you don't understand it yet. It brings a sense of curiosity to try to understand why someone may be making a decision that doesn't make sense. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think if we approach this from a position of curiosity rather than a position of defensiveness or reproach, I think we're going to get further because... Frankly, to me, it's honestly interesting, all of the different reasons why people might not choose to be vaccinated. So I'll ask questions like, is it okay if we talk a little bit about your thoughts on vaccination? I'd like to understand where you're coming from. And usually that results in a far more pleasant experience than just saying to a patient, well, actually, you're wrong. But in our defense, for generations, we were trusted experts on vaccines and people never questioned vaccines. And it's a bit hard to have people question what we know to be helpful and useful. And it's easy to get our defenses up. Yeah, I I totally appreciate that. And I will be in full disclosure. I think when I was a new graduate, I was much more likely to just be like, that's not correct. You are wrong. Exactly. That's misinformation. Rather than to have a sense of curiosity like you're talking about or to approach it as a conversation. I was much more apt to just be like, you don't know what you're talking about. Right. Did you go to med school? I went to med school, right? Like, that's where I love your approach because I think it's more thoughtful, it's more mature, it's more professional. And it recognizes that, you know, a simple yes, no discussion or you are wrong, I'm right, is not helpful in those situations. No, unfortunately, it's not. And I think the other thing to recognize in family medicine is because we have continuity of care with patients, oftentimes we have years to work with this as patients. A cheerful persistence goes a long way. Yeah, it's better for kids to get their childhood vaccines a little bit late rather than never. 
because sometimes parents just have lots of questions and answering those questions eventually might bring them to the place that you hope they'll get to. So let's delve into some specific scenarios. Talk us through the conversation you're having in the exam room with these patients. Like the first one, of people who oppose the vaccination because of their concerns that it could represent like government overreach or like they don't believe in mandates. I try to avoid the politics because um, getting into that can take up valuable time and can be divisive. So what I do is sidestep the whole government thing and try to focus on how it can help my patients. So let's take, for example, COVID vaccination. Lots of people were opposed to government mandates about this, but my job as a physician is to chat with individual patients and help them understand how a vaccination against COVID can be helpful for them and to help introduce the idea that, yes, you can still be anti-mandate, but still recognize that the vaccines might be helpful for yourself and you can still choose to be vaccinated. That is not necessarily a mutually exclusive position to be anti-mandate and to still be vaccinated. So that's the thought I would try to gently put in the conversation. Didn't always work, but that's my approach. How about you? Yeah, I I love that. And I particularly like the idea that in so many things in life, we artificially create a binary choice. You have to do X or you have to do Y. And I think a more nuanced and maybe more appropriate way is to think, can we do both? Can you believe that you're you're not a fan of mandates, but you also believe in vaccines Mm -hmm. and you think they're generally good for you, right? And those are not mutually exclusive positions to have, right? It doesn't always have to be a binary choice. Yeah, and even just to give them that permission that what you think are totally opposing viewpoints might not be. Okay, so here is a related thread there. So what about the conspiracy theorist, the person who believes there's nanotechnology, Mm -hmm. that the government is injecting stuff into you to surveil you? How do you deal with those kind of concerns? Not very well, I'll be honest. I find I can't get very far here conversing with these patients, despite how solid a patient-physician relationship we have or how well I think I know my stuff about vaccines. I just find it's incredibly difficult to compete with the internet because the amount of distrust on the internet and conspiracy theories around vaccines is incredibly tough to navigate. What's your approach? Yeah, I, I don't have any good answers here either. It's more pervasive than that now. And I think patients who have really bought into this mindset, you know, I think engaging conversations takes a long time Mm. and it's very slow. And this is where I actually think it benefits being a family medicine doctor because we're, again, playing the long game. So your goal is not to move them from one to a hundred in one conversation. Your goal is to move them from zero to 0.1, right? (laughs) You're just like, you're taking micro steps with them. And I think the other thing is to recognize that, you know, sometimes these can be symptoms of underlying mental health conditions. And it's an opportunity to approach it from that angle and say, well, as a physician, I'm concerned. And you can try to screen them appropriately for other things that might be contributing to their distrust. Yeah, a very gentle challenge to their opposition viewpoints is all that the encounters can handle. Because if it's a full-on frontal attack, you're never getting out of there. You're going to hear about nanotechnology for three hours. (laughs) Oh, please, God. Please get me out of this. Then there's people who are opposed to vaccinations for religious reasons. And my approach to this is to try to understand their religious framework and belief system and how that influences vaccinations. And I'll admit that most people are very committed to their religious beliefs. And 
I find this one a tricky one to navigate as well. So I think this is a tricky one. And I think we would all acknowledge that what people personally believe may be different than what an organization that they belong to, a religious organization, believes. So I think people vary. And it's very rare that somebody says, well, I am an ex-religion and I believe 100% of what ex-religion says. Mm -hmm. Some people are like that, but most are not. So they're kind of, most people are kind of picking and choosing. Now, what I will say from my personal experience is that when some people have said, I believe in ex-religion, so I cannot get vaccinated. When I actually do a little digging and go to like their website or whatever, their theological stance, most of them are not Mm anti-vax. And actually most of them say either they are pro-vaccination and say that this is a way that we protect our communities, or they say it's kind of personal belief, right? Like it's up to the individual to decide whether they want it. But I've yet to read something where they say, as a religious institution, our theological belief is that you cannot get vaccinated, right? Like I think that's very rare, although I think that's what sometimes patients claim. I think the second thing I would say is if you're serving a community, especially a smaller community, and you have a lot of patients from a certain faith background or a certain religious organization, and they tend to see you in clinic, then I do think reaching out to their religious leaders can be really important. Because I think if their religious leaders are on board and think, oh, yeah, no, we're pro-vaccine. I don't know why they're saying that. Well, then I think you have a natural ally there. And I think, can you say, hey, can you talk to the people who tend your services or whatever you guys do and, and remind them that like vaccines are a good thing and that you know, you're know you not against it as a religious leader, right? Mm. I think that can be very, very helpful. And again, I think you're just trying to use your opportunity of being a community advocate to kind of address that situation. I was going to say, when, when you look at the research, it's interesting, the um, addressing vaccine hesitancy is most effective when it's a multi-pronged approach, mm-hmm. community and religious leaders, in addition to primary care physicians and everybody communicating clearly about this topic. So it's a good idea to reach out to the community leaders. So let's take another common thing I hear is, why would I take that vaccine I'm never going to get X disease. I'm good against COVID. I drink lots of lemon tea. <laughs> I, I'm not going to get COVID, so I don't need that vaccine. Before COVID, I heard this the most about the influenza vaccine. And everybody's saying, you know, I never get the flu. I'm fine. Mm. It's not an issue for me. I'm healthy. I handle it just fine. And this can be a, a tricky conversation because, well, for some people, you can appeal to the social contract. Like you can say, well, you know, you get this for the benefit of everybody else. That can feel a little bit more abstract. So this is where I sometimes find it's easier to make it personal. Like ask, like, who's in your family? Like, do you see your grandparents? Do you have little nieces, little nephews you hang out with? So just kind of trying to take the social contract approach, but bringing it down to the nano to the personal level can help. And also, I find it helpful to talk about say things like, well, like, I'm so thankful you haven't gotten the flu, but do you just to explore their understanding of the disease, what it's like and what it could be like to them if they're not vaccinated? How about you? How do you approach people who say, well, that disease is never going to affect me? Okay, so I I have an analogy that I use. I don't know if it's a good analogy because I'm not sure my success rate is all that great. (laughs) I'll I'll tell you the analogy. So when people say, I don't need that vaccine, I never get the flu or I never, you know, I'm going to protect against COVID. I usually ask them the question, okay, let's think about driving cars. Do you wear your seatbelt when you drive your car? Mm-hmm. And everybody says yes. They say, why? Are you planning to crash your car? Are you planning to get into an accident today? And they say, oh, well, no, of course not. And I said, do you get into accidents a lot? And they said, no, no, I, I know, I'm a good driver. I said, well, why, why do you wear your seatbelt then? So I try to tell them, 
We wear seatbelts because even if we're good drivers, we can't always control our environment totally. And the potential consequence of getting in an accident can be horrific, right? You can be involved in these terrible crashes, which sometimes they're fender benders and sometimes people die. And so we're so worried about the potential catastrophic outcome that we're protecting ourselves. Yeah. So I try to convince patients that, hey, there are a lot of things we do in life, not because we think we're at great risk for them or they're going to happen to us, but we're doing it to minimize our own personal risk and the risk of people around us. And so I said, if you wear your seatbelt when you drive, I don't think you can say, I'm not going to do that because it doesn't affect me. I don't think that's going to happen because that's why we wear seatbelts when we drive. (laughs) So, uh, you know, so that's that's my analogy. So I I would say that a few people have said, oh, that makes a lot of sense. And they say, okay, you're, you know, I need to be congruent in the areas of my life. I think other people look at me with blank eyes and say, I've lost you. <laughs> the analogy is too, is too subtle for me to follow along. So, but, that, but that is what I try to make. I say, look, if you wear your seatbelt when you drive, it probably would make sense that you would think about things like vaccines as well. Right. Yeah. Just because something's never happened to you doesn't mean it's not going to and that you shouldn't be prepared. And I would say it depends on the catastrophic outcome. So yes, the flu can just be like a cold and you have a little fever and you drink some you know, tea and, and eat some chicken noodle soup and you're back to work the next day or your life. And some people end up in the ICU because they can't breathe. So I can't predict who's going to have catastrophic outcomes. And so I say, you know, we try to protect everybody so that it could be you or it could be your kids or your grandparents or it could be somebody in your community. Yeah, It might be mild when they get it, but when they give it to their grandmother, it might not be. All right, next one. Yes. So another thing I hear a lot is, why do my kids need vaccines for diseases? that they're not getting exposed to. Like who gets polio or who has measles? Or you're telling me there are these diseases, but I've never heard of anyone ever having these diseases. Right, yeah, polio and measles have entered the chat in the United States with uh, both of them uh, a bigger issue than they used to be. I think this is where we're so privileged as a society, yet also ignorant, Hobie, because like we're not growing up in a time where every family lost at least one kid to what's now a vaccine-preventable disease. I think for most of us, it's just not a, not understanding the origins of these vaccines and why they were made and just how devastating it was for families to lose their children and that we really should be vaccinating like crazy to make sure that never happens again, that people don't have to deal with that loss. Just trying to understand why they're concerned about the vaccines and then reviewing the role of the vaccines in history and in current day can be helpful. Yeah, and and I will say... Even for me as a practicing physician, I know how bad polio can be. I know how bad measles can be. Mm. But mostly it's theoretical to me. So, you know, I've never seen a patient in an iron lung. I've had a few patients, older, older patients, who had polio and have sequelae from that. And so they are still alive and take care of them. And so they are living testament to how bad the disease can be. Mm. But that's really rare. And, and they are, to be honest, getting much older in their age. And so I don't know how much longer there will be like living proof of some of the long-term sequelae. Not just mention people who pass away from it, but if you survive and have complications, like, you know, it's not in your face every day anymore. It is devastating, but it's devastating in a theoretical way for most patients and maybe even for doctors, because we're trying to describe something that mostly we haven't really seen exactly. very much of. Yeah. I mean, I I hope we never see kids in iron lungs again or have to deal with throat webbing from diphtheria or terrible infant and toddler loss. I hope we never get there. Yeah. And I guess every conversation we have with our patients, encouraging them to get them is one step closer to preventing that. 
And uh, sometimes what I do with my patients, Hobie, is we'll talk about the individual vaccines. Like, it's easiest and ideal when people just follow the vaccine schedule. But gosh, if you <laughs> yes. are willing to get, you know, tetanus and diphtheria and pertussis, yes. you're willing to get that vaccine, but not willing to get MMR. Okay, we'll talk about MMR another day, right? Yeah. Just get some. Some is better than none. <laughs> yes, get some. That's right. Yeah, I agree. If they say, I want to split it up, I'll come back every week and I'll split it up. I'm like, great, let's do it. As long as you get them done. Absolutely. We want to be as accommodating as we can. So another common concern I have are vaccines that are tied to like perceived behavior. So I'm thinking of uh, HPV here, right? And, right? and patients say, well, if our kids get an HPV vaccine, that's going to make them more likely to be sexually promiscuous. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a tricky one. And I feel like education around that at a public level has improved since the vaccines came out about, uh, was it 10, 15 years ago now? But there's still some people who are very concerned that if they permit their kids to be vaccinated against HPV, that will be inconsistent with the morals and the values they're trying to bring their kids up with. And I find with some of, some of these parents, again, coming from a position of curiosity, finding out like, so what do you know about the vaccine? What do you know about HPV? Helping parents understand that our kids' lived reality is often very different than the one we imagine for them can help some parents be more open to the possibility of an HPV vaccination. And also just explaining what HPV can do, because I think for a lot of people, they just think, oh, HPV is a sexually transmitted infection. And there's not that connect there between HPV and cancers. And I think if we help parents understand that we're giving your kid a chance to prevent cancers, that really changes the conversation. I think that's where that's very helpful with the HPV vaccine. Yes, it is tied to sexual activity. That is true. You can't get HPV outside of sex. But what I would say is that does not negate the idea that a parent sharing their values, whatever they are, whatever their family values are, with their teen is still the most important thing. And it still carries the most weight. And even though we think our teenagers aren't listening to us, <laughs> right? Uh, the 5% or maybe 0.5% that gets in and stays in, that's still the loudest voice, you know? And I try to tell them like, again, don't make it mutually exclusive, right? You can get this vaccine and you can still have a lot of influence on the decisions that your teens are making. Yeah, yeah. You're playing the long game here, instilling values yes. in your kids and helping them out. And you're also giving them long-term improved health. So it's a win-win. It's a yeah. Okay. So another concern I get is about side effects. So commonly, the most one I hear is, I don't get the flu shot because last time I got the flu shot, I got the flu and I felt terrible. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We hear people um, talk a lot about side effects. And I think the, the big principle we need to remember is to acknowledge that side effects do exist and that they can happen. Like, And in the time of social media, like it amplifies stories of side effects like crazy, especially if you hear about like these real or perceived serious vaccine side effects. So, you know, the story about the apocryphal teen who dropped dead the day after their HPV vaccine. Yeah. We have to remember that these stories and narratives are what our patients are seeing every day. Every time they turn on social media, this is what they're seeing. And it's hard for people to separate the wheat from the chaff. And when you look at these scary stories, our stats can seem like so cold and sterile in comparison. You know, it's like, well, actually, there's only a 0.00001% of dying from the vaccine. It doesn't matter when every day this apocryphal teen has died, right? Yes. And I think this is a PR battle, right? Whether it's vaccine hesitancy or the anti-vax movement or anything else. like, So I think that's a really 
challenging thing to combat because it's constantly in their face. The message that we're trying to convey of, you know, if you give your child a vaccine, they'll have less chance of getting cervical cancer, having an abnormal pass, blah, 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 blah. That's not as sexy a story. That's not as attention-grabbing. In terms of helping our patients navigate their concerns about side effects, I think what we can do is we need to be familiar with the common side effects as well as the rare and the severe ones because they exist, and we really shouldn't dismiss our patients' concern. Sure, the chances of vaccine injury is low, but it does exist. And I think it's just respectful to dismiss them outright because a lot of our patients, sure, they've used Google, sure, they're Dr. Google, but they're aware of some of these potential side effects, and we need to help them sort through that concept of risk and what that means. What I would say is that when patients approach me and say, I'm really worried about side effects, I had a very severe reaction to the flu vaccine, I felt sick, I got the flu from the flu vaccine, I'm never going to do that again. I actually tried to flip it on them. And so this is what I say. I said, I understand you felt feverish, I understand you got very sick after the flu vaccine. I'm actually really happy that happened because what that means is that the vaccine worked. And so I say, that's really a good thing. It's not a bad thing. It's a good thing. If you feel sick from just getting bits and pieces of the flu vaccine injected in your arm, how are you going to feel when you have billions of flu viruses alive and replicating in your body? Hmm. And so I say, actually, rather than saying, I'm never getting the flu shot because it hurts so much, you actually are the one person who should really get it. Yeah, totally, totally. So helping them understand what's causing the side effects is, uh, is important. Yeah, and I think we're such a pain-averse culture or discomfort-averse culture that anything that causes a little discomfort, a little pain is obviously bad. I don't want to do that. Mm, very true. And sort of acknowledging that actually that's part of the reason we're giving it to you is to cause the slight discomfort to avoid the large discomfort later. It's actually worked. A couple of patients have said, okay, that makes sense. Mm. Like, I, maybe I do need to get the flu shot. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so I, I think that, that understanding of, Flipping it from a negative to a positive has been helpful in some discussions. Yeah, and, and I think being able to provide actual statistics of potential side effects, I think being able to reassure them how rare and few and far between, like the Guillain-Barre and all of those things are, just to put that risk in context. All right, Hobie, I know there's lots of other scenarios that pop up when we chat with our patients about vaccinations, but I think we've covered the big ones here. And I, I hope it's been a good primer, maybe just to give us something to think about and to consider as we have these conversations with our patients. Yeah, and I hope that our listeners take away that this is a, a common shared experience. Like we all as primary care physicians advocating and doing vaccination work in our clinics, like this is a common conversation. And the idea of feeling frustrated or confused or even having a hard time sort of navigating these things, I think is something that we're all going through, mm -hmm. right? And, and the more that we can recognize our patients are singling us out, and it's not that we're the only ones struggling with these conversations, that we as a medical community are all struggling on trying to help our patients understand. And I appreciate the advice of being curious, right? trying to listen to understand, not to change anyone's mind, I think is always a helpful place to start. Yeah, absolutely. And when in doubt, just give it your best shot. But I'm saying, not getting out of here without a mom joke. <laughs> I got a 50-year-old man in cardiac arrest, and our building just lost power. All right, give me jumper cables, rubber gloves, 3,000 grams of Soul Medrol. Stack. What are you, MacGyver? No, I'm the Generalist. Generalist. Welcome to The Generalist. It's Dr. Penny Wilson with you, and I am joined today by everyone's favorite generalist, Dr. Vanessa Cardi. Hi, Vanessa. Hi, Penny. So I want to ask you, have you ever worked in a maternity hospital 
and seen a patient being hurriedly wheeled through the corridors with a nurse or a doctor kneeling on the foot of their bed with their hand up under the blankets. I have, and um, I've also seen it on TV probably more than once, more often on TV than in real life, but regardless of where you see it, it always looks a little bit strange. Well, that is what we are talking about today, the wild obstetric ride that is the umbilical cord prolapse. Oh dear, okay, my obstetrics-fearing bones are quivering, but uh, let's go through the basics and maybe I won't be quite so scared by the end of this. So what is a cord prolapse? It's when the umbilical cord descends through the cervix in a patient with ruptured membranes. It's classified as occult when the cord is alongside the fetal presenting part, or overt when it's past the presenting part. There's also something called cord presentation, where the cord is lying between the fetal presenting part and the cervix, but it hasn't yet descended through the cervix. And this is usually when the membranes are still intact. And so just from what you're describing there, I could imagine that a cord presentation could quickly and pretty easily turn into a cord prolapse when those waters break. It sure can. And cord prolapse is an obstetric emergency, as the cord can become compressed or experience vasospasm, compromising the blood supply to the fetus. Can you think of some of the complications that could arise? Well, a fetus without a reliable blood supply is certainly at risk of all sorts of complications like asphyxia, which obviously a bad one, hypoxic ischemic encephalopathy, also bad, cerebral palsy, bad, and even worse of all, fetal death. Yeah, that's right. One study quoted the perinatal mortality rates at a whopping 9%. Oh my goodness, so this is why I'm scared of obstetrics, I told you. Okay, so this is pretty dangerous. Now, how common is it that this happens? The rates are quoted to be between 0.1 and 0.6%, which seems pretty right to me. I can recall diagnosing two cases so far in my career. All right, so can you talk us through the diagnosis? It seems like you would need to either see or feel the cord, I'm assuming, and seeing or feeling it where it shouldn't be. Is that about right? That's exactly right. It's pretty straightforward from that perspective. Sometimes you just find it really unexpectedly on a routine vaginal examination. That's what happened in my first case. I could just feel it in the vagina below the head with no other signs. And sometimes you might have a suspicion that there could be a cord prolapse going on. The classic scenario is if there is a sudden change in fetal heart rate pattern, particularly after obstetric intervention or after rupture of membranes. That's what's happened in my second case, fetal bradycardia after amniotomy for induction of labour. So if you see that happen, that big unexpected drop in heart rate, you need to do a vaginal examination or a speculum to check for cord. You also need to check for a cord if the patient with risk factors has rupture of membranes. All right, so let's go through some of those risk factors. If I recall correctly, and please correct me if I'm wrong, it's usually to do with the positioning of the fetus, right? Like if they're transverse or if they're breech? That's right. Breech position or transverse, oblique or unstable lie are definitely risk factors, particularly in a preterm or a small fetus. So I'm kind of picturing like a square peg in a round hole sort of situation. Normally the round head is pushed down pretty snug into the round space of that dilating cervix. But if the head is not down there, say it's maybe floating quite high up in the abdomen, or if there's a foot or shoulder presenting instead, then there's basically just simply space around which that cord can slip through. That's actually a great way of thinking about it. And that's why anything that increases the space around the cervix or doesn't have that nice, snug, head-to-cervix fit can also increase the risk. So don't forget about things like polyhydramnios, grand multiparity, and twins or other multiples. Now, you also mentioned that obstetric interventions are a risk factor. So what kind of interventions are we talking about here? 
Around 50% of cases actually occur after obstetric intervention, particularly interventions where we are moving the fetus around, for obvious reasons. So things like external cephaloversion, internal pedalic version of a second twin, manual rotation manoeuvres, or artificial rupture of the membranes when the fetal head is not well engaged. So is there anything we can do to actually prevent this cord prolapse from happening? There's actually not much that we can do antenatally to prevent this from happening, apart from identifying high-risk patients and preventing them with adequate counselling. For example, if I have a patient with unstable lie or a footling breach in late third trimester, I tell them to get to the hospital ASAP if their waters break and call an ambulance if needed. And I would imagine that maybe some very high-risk patients might need to actually be admitted expectantly to hospital at about, I don't know, 38, 37 weeks, just in case it happens? Yeah, that's right, so that they're close by if anything should happen. And then for those of us who perform obstetrics procedures, it's really important for us to be aware of the risks that you know, we're putting on patients and take precautions as necessary. Like, for example, we might do a controlled ARM for patients with polyhydramnios or a high head. And that's when we use fundal pressure to push the head down onto the cervix during the amniotomy to close off those potential gaps. And we might also consider doing it in the OR, where we can quickly proceed to caesarean section if necessary. Okay, so we've talked about what it is, how it happens, and how to diagnose this. But what do you actually do once you make the diagnosis? Because I think that's the part that's uh, obviously going to be scaring all of us. Yeah, there's no two ways about it, unfortunately. These kids just need to be delivered as quickly and safely as possible. This is one of those cases where we're going to be calling a code blue, hitting the emergency buzzer, getting as many people on site as possible. Ideally, you want an obstetrician, paediatrician, anesthesiologist, and an OR team, if you have them. There would be some cases where it would be appropriate to deliver vaginally. For example, if the cervix were fully dilated if the head was below spines and they were suitable for an instrumental delivery, or for a pedalic version and breech extraction of a second twin where you can just grab the foot and pull the baby out. However, in most cases, delivery is going to be via emergency caesarean section. Now, we obviously want to proceed to the operating room without delay, but what can we do to keep the fetus oxygenated and perfused in the meantime while we're getting there? We want to keep the cord from getting compressed, so ideally we want a staff member to be pushing the fetal head up off the cervix with their fingers, so it's not pushing down too firmly and pinching the cord. Aha, so this is where you get that scene of the midwife or the nurse or the doctor or probably the medical student who's on the bed with the patient as they're being wheeled through the hospital to the operating room, is that right? Yeah, underneath the blankets, that person actually has their hand in the vagina, pushing that head up off the cervix, and it needs to stay there until the baby is delivered. But now we have a lot of listeners, myself included, who work in rural and remote areas or in pre-hospital environments who might not have obstetric or operating room facilities at their fingertips. What are they going to do? Yeah, hats off to you folks out there. It's a scary place to be on your own. But I'll tell you, if there is going to be a delay in delivery for transfer or for any other reason, there are some other strategies for preventing the cord compression. One of them is to fill the bladder by inserting a catheter and infiltrating 500 to 750 mils of saline until the bladder is palpable above the pelvic brim and then clamping it off. This has a similar effect of pushing the fetal presenting part up and off the cervix. Can you think of any other ways that we could potentially keep that head off the cervix, Vanessa? Well, I mean, I'm assuming we could use gravity to our advantage. The patient could adopt a knees-to-chest position where they're sort of kneeling on their knees with their bum up in the air and their head down at bed level. And this is sometimes known as the Sims position. 
Yeah, it's kind of like a kneeling downward dog, but much less zen. Yeah, I'm never doing yoga with you, Penny. That sounds like <laughs> a nightmare. <laughs> an alternative position is called the exaggerated Sims position, where the patient is lying on the left side with pillows or cushions elevating the hip and the head down as low as possible. This position is the safer option for ambulance transfer because they can be belted in. In both cases, the objective is to get the pelvis higher than the torso and use that gravity to reduce the downward pressure on the cervix. But I do have another question, which is unscripted here, Penny. Okay. For the rural and remote doctors, I always was told that if someone puts their hand into the vagina and they feel a cord, you can't take your hand out. Is that still correct? Well, you need to make sure that if you're going to take your hand out because you're the only person there and you need your hand to make the phone calls, you want to be making sure that either somebody else puts their hand in there pretty quickly or that you move rapidly onto your bladder filling or your repositioning maneuvers. All right. And if, for say, you happen to be maybe in transport with this patient in a plane and they're in labor and then suddenly you have this cord prolapse, your hand goes in, you're examining her, you realize there's a cord prolapse. You stay now in that position in the airplane next to the stretcher until she's delivered, essentially. Is that correct? If you can, that's absolutely what you want to try and do. Okay. All right. Just to paint that picture. Okay. <laughs> so this is great. This is great because this is giving us some very practical things to do. I love this idea of the Foley. There are some things that we can do using gravity to our advantage. But we don't want the cord to go into vasospasm either. So how do we prevent that? We want to handle the cord as little as possible, but also not to let it get too cold. If it's dangling outside the vagina, we can gently nudge it back into the vagina to keep it warm. There's also one more thing to consider. If there's a persistently abnormal fetal heart rate and a delay to delivery, we can also use acute tocolysis to relax the uterus. Okay, so we've kept the blood flowing through the cord and now we've made it to the operating room. How did they do the anesthetic for a caesarean or a spinal in this situation? You know, we really love our anesthesiologists. They are really our best friends when things are going pear-shaped in maternity. Sometimes, if the fetus isn't too compromised, they can do a quick single-shot spinal with the patient in a side-lying position. Otherwise, a rapid GA may be necessary. And then when it comes to delivery, the surgical management is as per any emergency caesarean. We deliver the baby as quickly and carefully as possible, hand her over to the neonatologist or paediatrician, and breathe a huge sigh of relief when we hear the sweet sound of the newborn's cries. <sighs> Look at that, you've saved another life. Meanwhile, I'm in the corner having a palpitations and a syncopal event. <laughs> yeah, the successful management of cord prolapse is absolutely a big team effort, which is why it's so crucial to be prepared for these and other rare obstetrics emergencies. There are also great cases to incorporate into simulation training too. And we mustn't forget, of course, that these kind of really rapid emergency deliveries can be extremely traumatic for patients and their partner or support person. So it's really important for these families to have access to debriefing and psychological support because this is the definition of a whirlwind. I mean, they will not know what's hit them. Yeah, that's a great point. No one has emergency cesarean for cord prolapse on their birth plan. So Vanessa, do you want to go ahead and give us the take-home messages? I'll see if I can remember this and get through it without sweating. Okay, so... Recap. Umbilical cord prolapse is an obstetric emergency, yes. We should check for prolapse if a patient has risk factors and they break their waters, or if there's a change of fetal heart rate pattern after, say, a rupture of membranes or other obstetric intervention. We want to get these patients delivered as soon as possible, usually via cesarean. And in the meantime, try to keep pressure off the cord by pushing the fetal presenting part off the cervix or use bladder filling 
or maternal positioning maneuvers if there's going to be a delay to delivery. Call for help many times, get the multidisciplinary team involved, and practice in advance so everyone is prepared for these rare and potentially extremely serious events. And that is Cord Prolapse in a nutshell. Greetings all, this is Vanessa Cardi, and I am very happy to once again be joined by Dr. Aisha Khatib, and we are having her back now to pick her brains about travel medicine and fever in a returning traveler. So Aisha, thank you so much for joining us again. Thank you, Vanessa, for inviting me back. It's a pleasure to be here. So uh, why don't you give us a little bit of an idea of why you think this is important right now, and then we'll start going through some questions and things to consider. I think it's really important to review this topic because really our preoccupation with COVID-19 in the last two years has been the main focus of someone who might present with fever. But now that travel is restarting, it's going to be important to review our approach to fever, especially if they have recently been a return traveler. Fever in a return traveler is a very common syndrome. It actually occurs in up to 17% of ill-returned travelers. And often, it can be due to self-limited infections such as traveler's diarrhea. The other thing that's really important is that this may represent a more serious and potentially life-threatening cause, such as malaria, dengue, or typhoid fever. These cases are very difficult to diagnose or manage because they can present with vague presentations with a lot of overlap between many different types of diseases so I think one of the things is really important to have an organized approach to diagnosing and managing anyone who presents with fever so that life-threatening illnesses can be identified and timely treatment started as well. But what are some of the top ones that we really need to remember to think about? Because obviously, if we don't think about it, we're certainly never going to pick it up. Malaria was a top cause in 20 to 30% of fever and return traveler followed by acute traveler's diarrhea in about 10 to 20%, and respiratory tract infections in about 10 to 15% were the top causes, dengue fever in up to 5%, as well as enteric fever, skin and soft tissue infections, rickettsioses, urinary tract and sexually transmitted infections, viral hepatitis, and nonspecific viral or mononucleosis-like syndromes. In pediatric travelers, malaria was definitely a top cause, as well as viral syndromes and unspecified febrile illnesses, as we can attest to sometimes in the emergency department and walk-in clinics. Dengue and enteric fever are also very well represented in, in this demographic of travelers. I think it's also important to remember that fever after international travel can also be due to non-infectious causes as well, and can have a very diverse etiology, including drug reactions, pulmonary emboli, and inflammatory conditions such as inflammatory bowel disease or malignancy. History. So when we're doing the patient's history, we obviously want to find out as many details as we can of what they did while they were away. We want to know what they ate, where they went, what activities they were into, were they sexually active, were they involved in any particularly high-risk activities. We want to find out why they traveled, were they what is known as VFRs, meaning visiting friends and relatives? Were they migrant workers or were they tourists? Each of these groups carry different levels of risk, and so it is important to know that detail. And we also need to know when they traveled. As we're going to talk about later, some tropical diseases have a long incubation periods, 
So we really need to try and get precise timelines down when we're taking a history. Now, Aisha, are there any other key points for history that you want to highlight? I think one of the key messages that I would want to send home to listeners is that geographic risk predicts disease. So it's really important to assess disease risk by geographic region, and that can really give you a clue as to what may be going on. With climate change and the changing environments that we're seeing around the world, we are also seeing some changing patterns in this regard. I mean, I know 200, 300 years ago, there used to be malaria in the swamps around Washington, D.C., and then that disappeared. But now there are reports of, you know, dengue coming back further north into the Americas and possibly even malaria. So I guess that's something we still have to consider as well. This is it. We're going to see a change in the landscape of where tropical diseases are going to present. And we're already seeing this. And and a good example is Nepal. You know, in the last, I would say, six to eight years in Nepal, where we never saw things like dengue fever up in the mountainous regions, because we never usually used to see mosquitoes breeding above 2,500 meters because of that temperature. We have seen huge outbreaks of dengue fever and chikungunya now in places that we haven't seen at higher altitude, for example, because of the warming climate. So uh, watch this space for sure. Presenting features. Let's think about maybe some typical clinical presentations of fever in a return traveler. If you can give us like what approach you would use and how to classify these. This can be tricky, right? Because fever, we know it's already a syndrome in itself. And we know that there can be a lot of crossover with different types of syndromes. But this might be a nice approach to use. Respiratory. Are they presenting with primarily respiratory symptoms, first of all? And if that's the case, you may be thinking more in your differential of things like influenza or COVID, or depending on if they were in the Middle East, MERS, if you're combining it with fresh water and they've got some respiratory symptoms, you know, maybe leptospirosis. Again, malaria is something that can present with respiratory symptoms. So something to think about. The other thing is a recent parasitic infection. There is a lot of life cycles of parasites and worms where they migrate in and through the lungs. And sometimes initially in the first month or two can present with respiratory symptoms. So that's one thing to kind of ask. Rash. The other thing, and this is really going to be a clue for a lot of these presentations, is rash. At any point did they have a rash. And sometimes, you know, patients will present with a rash and they have no idea. They don't even know. They're like, oh, do you have a rash? Like, no. I'm like, okay, well, can you take your shirt off? Let's just take a look at the skin. And they've got this beautiful rash of like, you know, your dengue white islands on a Red Sea or really fine pink rose spots. And we'll talk about, you know, that can be something that's a clue for typhoid fever. Icterus. The other thing are other clues such as icterus. So any yellowing can be specific to different types of diseases, such as leptospirosis or a viral hepatitis. Conjunctival changes. We talk about conjunctal suffusion in leptospirosis, for example, which means you get like this conjunctival erythema or redness, but you don't get the conjunctival inflammatory exudate. So just red in the eyes, but no discharge. So that might be a clue, especially with some yellowing as well. Abdominal pain. Again, another syndrome you can look at is abdominal pain. 
you know, different types of presentations can be associated with that, infectious or non-infectious, but this would be something that may clue you in to kind of the etiology of the fever. Eosinophilia. Eosinophilia is probably the other big one that we look at in the tropical and travel realm, and that would be on their blood work. And that often is associated to certain parasitic infections that really can go high, especially with more acute presentations when the infection is early on. Altered mental status. I mean, malaria would be on your top differential. That would be the first thing that you'd want to rule out because that can be fatal. Of course, there's viral or bacterial meningitis or meningoencephalitis that we'd want to worry about as well. And these can be fungal or parasitic diseases as well that present. Often they're not as acute as we see with things such as malaria, and there may be some other clue with it. But, uh, you know, I would say malaria until proven otherwise would be really important to rule out. Hemorrhage. Obviously, the first and foremost that we often think about when we think about hemorrhagic fever is Ebola, right? But there's a lot of different hemorrhagic fever, and the concern is a lot of these are viral emerging diseases that we're now starting to see a trend of. Dengue fever is something that we're more likely to see that can become hemorrhagic. And the issue with dengue fever is you can have dengue once, and it can be not so bad, like uncomfortable. But the second time around that you get dengue, if you get infected with a different viral strain, you can have this hypersensitive reaction and you can actually have a more severe disease. So you can actually have more hemorrhagic dengue fever or go into kind of a dengue shock. The other thing is with dengue fever, you know, we advise not having NSAIDs because that could increase bleeding risk. Leptospirosis is another one and rickettsiosis where you tend to get more of like a vasculitic type of presentation or vasculitis. And it can be like a microvasculitis and you have presentation that can be petechial. And these patients are really important to follow because these are patients that can tank very quickly. All right. That does not sound good. None of this sounds good. (laughs) And then, of course, as you mentioned earlier, there are the non-infectious causes as well, which could present in a variety of ways, but DVT or PE, drug reactions, autoimmune responses, and then neoplasias as well. Those are all things to, of course, keep in that approach when you're thinking about different syndromes. Now, when I think of cases of fever in a returning traveler, I'm always looking for help in terms of clues as to what the right diagnosis is. And one of those clues I'm thinking about is the pattern of the fever. Can knowing the pattern of the fever help with that diagnosis in any way? Is this something that we can use as a tool? Yeah, for sure. One of the prime examples would be malaria. There's different types of malaria. And different species of malaria will have a different pattern of fever. And that's the reason for that is that's when the malaria parasite often goes into the liver and then it gets into the blood cells. And it basically in the blood, it will burst those blood cells. And on bursting those blood cells, you get these cyclical fevers and chills. And the different species can do that at different timings. For example, malaria falciparum can do that every 48 hours, that cycle, as well as malaria vivac. The quaternary pattern can be seen in malaria malari, which we often see coming from West Africa or from South Asia. You can get these fevers that are continuous and daily. And again, malaria can do all of these things. But the other one that we often tend to see more continuously 
or daily are uh, enteric fevers, rickettsiosis, or even acute HIV presentation. The other ones that are interesting are biphasic patterns of fever, or we call this like a saddleback fever, where there's different phases of the presentation of the disease. And dengue fever and leptospirosis are a prime example of this, where they may have certain acute initial symptoms, you know, with fever and you know, maybe myalgias and just general malaise. And then they seem to get better and those symptoms tend to abate and the fever will abate. And then maybe 24 hours to 72 hours later, it returns. And often they'll present again with fever, but sometimes more severe symptoms and that conjunctival suffusion in the case of leptospirosis or hemorrhaging <laughs> or more kind of multi-organ involvement and hypotension would be another one. So, you know, that would be another thing to caution when people come in initially to be seen by you and you're like, oh, you're not so bad, like take some Tylenol, go home. But remember to say, look, if you're getting it worse, if you're getting worse, your symptoms are getting worse, come back right away if you're still working them up, right? Like if they're yeah. not sick enough to be admitted, like have a low threshold to have them come back if anything seems to be getting worse. Right. So you're hemorrhaging at home, come back, definitely. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> well, the other patterns of fever you see is this undulant, like this grumbling fever that kind of just persists for weeks and weeks and weeks, right? Brucella is one that we've picked up that can kind of present with this general malaise. And, and it's like a low-grade fever that's just kind of persisting. Obviously, malignancy can present like that as well and other autoimmune type diseases. So that's something to work up. And this is sometimes harder because these people will sometimes present, you know, four to six weeks out because they say, oh, I thought their fever would be gone by now. And you may not know that they've traveled anywhere, right? So it's really important to ask that travel history because they'll just say, oh, this fever has been around for so-and-so and they may not connect it to their travels at this point. And the same thing with recurrent fevers that can present like days, weeks, or months out. Malaria vivax is a classic one for that where you've got the parasite that goes into and sits in the liver and has a dormant stage in the liver, whereas the falciparum malaria that we often see in most places in Africa doesn't do that. The vivax tends to do that and then actually can present, you know, I've seen cases up to a year later, okay? So it's something to think about having that history. Other tick bites, for example, can do that as well, do recurrent relapsing type fevers as well. So, and um, parasites, for example, schistosomiasis or strongyloides, you know, as they're replicating in the body. And we know strongyloides is one that can have an auto replication cycle that can last for 20 plus years in the body. So when the parasite's laying their eggs, for example, that can cause an inflammatory reaction in the body that presents with a fever. So they may get a fever for a day or two every two to three months, and they may not pay much attention to it, but that would be something else that can present with these recurrent long-term fevers. Okay, I like that idea of using the chronicity and patterns of the fever to help us, because otherwise it can certainly seem overwhelming for sure. How about now we switch it up a little bit, and we're going to talk about physical exam. And I'm going to name a disease, and you're going to tell me what sort of classic findings I should be looking for or I might see. I might, you know, not necessarily always going to see, but we'll play it like that. Are you okay with that? Sounds fun. I love it. <laughs> okay. Let's start with rickettsiosis. Asher. 
you know, you think your Escher, and Escher is basically it'd be a black looking kind of scab, usually less than a centimeter. If you see that, you know, that's like a spot diagnosis, but you have to look for it. You really want to check in their groin area, behind their knees, behind their ankles, in their armpits. You can look for that. And the other thing with rickettsiosis would be like a petechial rash. What about enteric fever? Any classic uh, finding I can look for? Yeah. So with enteric fever and typhoid, you know, uh, if you're lucky, rose spots is what, you know, you usually get picked up. And rose spots can present, you know, two or three weeks out after the initial infection. And what they are is basically one to four millimeter papules that kind of present mostly on the chest and abdomen kind of front area. The other thing with typhoid, we sometimes see is something called relative bradycardia, where, you know, when you have someone come in with a fever, you expect them to have a faster heart rate, right? That's one of the symptoms or that can be related to fever. But with typhoid, they tend to get a relative bradycardia compared to that. Oh, I like these. I like all these little pearls. All right. What about uh, chikungunya? So chikungunya means to be bent over or all twisted up. So one of the key things in chikungunya is you get this small joint arthritis. So you're literally looking at small joint swelling and pain in the hands, in the elbows, in the wrists, in the knees and the ankles, and often it's symmetric. What about leptospirosis? Conjunctile suffusion is the big one in leptospirosis. And it's really interesting because it's different from just a conjunctivitis. So suffusion means you've got like erythema of the conjunctiva, but unlike conjunctivitis, it's not an inflammatory process, it's a hemorrhagic process. So there's no inflammation and there's no exudate. There's no inflammatory exudate from leptospirosis. And that's why it's a bit of a, you know, that's one of the differentiating factors of it. And obviously jaundice is a big one. And if they're in jaundice, then you really need to get help fast. <laughs> and that usually it presents with the more severe disease of leptospirosis, which is called Wales disease. It's almost like necrosis of your liver. What about Zika? Zika, dengue, and chikungunya are very difficult to differentiate. And you have cross-reactivity when you test for Zika and dengue. So if someone has dengue, their Zika might be positive. And one of the differentiating factors between Zika and dengue was the conjunctivitis that we were seeing in Zika. Anything classic for dengue? You know, the classic, when somebody comes in with dengue fever, you get what we call this break bone fever is what they call it. Because they get really bad pain, like in their, they feel like they're like this myalgia, the bones are breaking. That's the type of pain that they have. And they also they get this retroorbital headache that people presenting with dengue can complain of. But the classic, classic, classic for dengue is that white island on a red sea. So the rash for dengue, they basically look like it could be quite red, actually, like really quite erythematous, but they've got these white spots throughout. And it's all just very, you know, macular. It's very flat on the body, but they call that the white island on a red sea. And that can be quite as a rule and sign for dengue fever. The other thing that's interesting, so they do a tourniquet test for dengue. I don't know if you've heard of this before, where they put a two by two square or coin on your arm, and then they put a tourniquet and they pump up the blood pressure. And then you take that away and you see, you count the petechial spots in that area. And if they have a certain number of spots of petechiae, 
that usually means a diagnosis of dengue. So <laughs> they use this tourniquet test in uh, certain places in Asia, which is really interesting. So that's another that's, physical exam that they use. That's a great uh, low resource hack if you're, uh, you know, having to send out for your test. At least you could do that initially. <laughs> yeah, not very comfortable for the patient, but it's very cool to see. <laughs> okay, Aisha, that was a ton of information and my mind is now overflowing with thoughts of fever patterns and various bugs that can live in different bits of me for several years, it turns out. So let's take a break for a bit, stretch our cognitive legs. And when we come back, Aisha's going to talk about incubation periods, different tests that we might want to do for febrile travelers, and also some possible treatments. So we'll catch you in part two. Mel, can you guess how much this country's total annual healthcare expenditure related to sinusitis is? $15. It's not a very expensive disease in my mind. No. It's not, but are you ready? In a 2019 paper, it was estimated at $3.4 billion. Billion with a B. What the? Most of which was spent on prescription medication and imaging. What? Which is crazy. Especially because you don't need to give many medicines and you don't need to image them. Bingo! (laughs) So what are you doing? This is a racket. Exactly. Hi, everybody. It's Gita. Mel and I are going to do a little review on sinusitis, which is the bane of all of our existences, I feel like. Why is it the bane of your existence? Is it because you know that these people have a virus, they don't need any treatment, and you feel like you need to give them antimicrobials? Why are you so upset about sinusitis? Well, I'm not upset about it. It's just a conversation that we have to have all the time. They want treatment and the treatments that you offer, unless they start with a Z, doesn't seem to make anybody happy. (laughs) (laughs) So it's just a conversation that when you have enough, you're just like, okay, I'm tired of this conversation. And sinusitis kind of stinks. Everybody's miserable. People that have sinusitis are miserable. They want you to make their misery go away quickly. And when it's not in your power to do that, it feels bad. So that's why. That's why it's the bane. And it's so common. That's why I say it's the bane of our existence. Yes, it is common. And we've fed the bears for years. They would come in, we'd say, oh, you've got sinusitis, here's some antimicrobials. And now the patient thinks every time they have a little pain and a little virus, that the only way to get better is with antimicrobials. We've created our own bed to sleep in, as it were. Sinusitis. All right, so let's just do a little review on sinusitis. And to start with some background, it's very common in adults and kids, but today we're just talking about adults. And we can categorize sinusitis by a bunch of ways, by location of the symptoms, by the duration, by the etiology, like is it infectious, inflammatory, or allergic? So Mel, let's just review, where are these sinuses that we're talking about? You got ones up there in your frontal lobe area, above your eyeballs. You've got your maxillary behind your cheekbones. (laughs) You got your ethmoid, which are up there in your brain balls. And you got your sphenoid, which are deep, deep, deep undercover. But the most common one we think about is that maxillary sinus, because they're the big ones. And that's where you can get blockages and you can get a little pain and pressure in there after you get a viral URI, for example. And yes, they can get secondly bacterial infected. And yes, you can get fungi. But the vast majority of the time, what we're talking about here is some sort of a a viral thing, which has caused some pressure and given you a bit of pain. Yeah. And then usually acute sinusitis is considered under four weeks. Just say that again. Acute sinusitis is under four weeks. Four weeks. If you're at three weeks and six days, this is not chronic. This is not subacute. You're still got acute sinusitis. Yep. Subacute, four weeks to 12 weeks. 
right? Like three months of sinusitis. It's still subacute. <laughs> still not chronic. No. Not chronic yet. You don't get to chronic until you're over 12 weeks. And then recurrent sinusitis, what they consider recurrent sinusitis is having four episodes a year yeah. without intervening symptoms. That one I can believe. But like trying to convince someone that's had three weeks of sinusitis that this is still just like run-of-the-mill acute sinusitis, they're not happy with that. Yeah. Etiologies of sinusitis. But anyway, as you said, yeah, there's these various etiologies. Number one by far, viral. Allergic is probably up there too. If it's infectious and acute, it's most often viral. If it is bacterial, which does happen, usually it's the same bugs as we see in nasopharyngeal infections, otitis media. You mentioned fungal. I don't think we're going to discuss that one here. That does happen, but we're not really discussing aspergillosis from the urgent care. But here's a question. Do you know what the gold standard for diagnosis of bacterial sinusitis is? I absolutely do, because I used to do this all the time. It's an antral sinus puncture with a mucus aspirate and follow-up culture. So you basically take a giant needle and you <laughs> shove it into that sinus and you suck out the goobers. How many times have you done that, Peter? You did not used to do that. <laughs> I've never done that. <laughs> but I'm impressed that you know, though. <laughs> yeah, none of us are going to do that. But it is on the guidelines. Like, if you really want to know, that's the gold standard. But what would you say we should use as clinical guidelines if we're not going to do that in the urgent care, which I don't suggest you do? Well, it depends what you're trying to do here, because... There's this huge spectrum of sinusitis, right? Sinusitis means an inflammation of the sinus. But we're trying to pick out those people who just like have a little bit of cold and a little bit of sinus pressure from people who might actually have something more substantial. So if you look at the American Academy of Otolaryngology, their clinical guideline for the diagnosis of acute bacterial sinusitis, somebody that might actually get some benefit from antimicrobials, they talk about them having to have purulent nasal discharge, nasal obstruction, facial pain, Facial pressure lasting more than 10 days without improvement and symptoms that are worsening within 10 days after they started to get better. So this is the real deal, right? This is the person who's like, my face is killing me. You tap over the sinus, it's killing them. I got pus leaking out in the back of my nose and this has been going for over a week. That is a person where bacterial sinusitis is more likely. History. There are definitely some things in the history that you should be asking about. Do they have fever that might raise your suspicion with everything else that maybe this is like a real bacterial sinusitis? And I mean, not that you can't see that in viral syndromes, but just pay attention to it. Are they immunosuppressed? That should get your attention. Have they had sinusitis a lot? Have they had that recurrent sinusitis or other recent infections? Got to ask them like, okay, do you have facial pain or do you have a global headache? Is there neck pain? Because we're going to talk about ways that sinusitis can spread and make things complicated. So those are important questions to ask. You want to ask about other symptoms they might have. If they have like red itchy eyes or things that might suggest allergies, then perhaps it's an allergic sinusitis. Do they have a cough? Do they have conjunctivitis? Other signs pointing to maybe it being viral. You've got to ask about visual changes because some of the complications of sinusitis can come along with visual changes. And these days you've got to ask about COVID because when we're talking about testing, like you don't really need a lot of tests, but you may need to check them for COVID. Physical exam. So Mel, how's our physical exam at diagnosing acute sinusitis? Do you mean how's your physical exam or how my physical exam? Because my physical exam is awesome. I'm not surprised. I walk up to the patient and I notice just the mildest, most subtle swelling of the face. I tap on it. There's tenderness there, which is right over where I tap. None of this stuff is actually very good. No, it's so not. <laughs> our physical exam isn't great, but I think it makes the patient feel better. Mm. It makes you feel better. And there are some times where this sinusitis actually has turned into osteomyelitis and other bad things, and they do have frontal bossing and 
there is a giant abscess that she's about to burst and break mm, into the brain. So, puffy tumor. We'll get into that in a moment. <laughs> yes, exactly. So do a good physical exam and check the patient out. They'll believe you more when you say, as in most cases, we really don't need to do anything for you if you've done the good exam. That neurological exam and particularly the cranial nerve exam, I think is really, really important. There are a lot of complications from that rare, rare patient that has a bacterial cause which has now spread from beyond the sinuses. So a good exam, I think, is really important. Yeah, I totally agree. Imaging. And if your exam doesn't suggest anything but uncomplicated sinusitis, then you really don't need to do any tests or imaging except for COVID, like I mentioned. Maybe you want to do that. But like, you really don't need to do much, which is, I don't know how we generated $3.4 billion in costs. I know. But you really don't need to do much. I mean, so Mel, let's talk about imaging for a second, because we used to do x-rays of the sinuses. And if you see an air fluid level, you'd be like, oh, that's sinusitis. Oh my gosh. I don't feel like there's any indication to do plain films for sinuses at all. No, and I agree with you. We used to do these and they're not particularly helpful. Again, what's the gold standard? And we used to do a lot of plain films of the head and neck for trauma. And in all of these trauma patients, you'd come back and be like, there's evidence of sinusitis. And you talk to the patient like, no, I feel completely fine. Mm -hmm. You do head CTs and they'll often have evidence of sinusitis and a thickened sinus and an air fluid level. And you talk to the patient like, I got nothing at all. So they are both, these images are particularly the plain films are not very sensitive nor very specific. But if you really want to know, because you're worried about the patient, because they're sick, because they've got a cranial nerve problem, because you're worried that there is actually a complication of sinusitis, then plain films isn't going to get it done. You need a CT scan at the least. So it's like nothing or a CT scan. Yeah, completely. Treatment. So for uncomplicated sinusitis, let's talk about treatment for a second. I think uncomplicated, for the most part, you get away with symptomatic care, meaning if they can take decongestants, decongestants, they can think about neti pots and things like that. But basically, they just kind of have to just deal with it for about a week, which they don't really like hearing. But You can try some decongestants and some of those nasal sprays and Try and open up those passages so things can drain out a little better. Yeah. And so I would say, you know, reserve treatment for the patient who's worsening after initial improvement or they're escalating or they've got severe symptoms or really ongoing past that seven day mark. You know, for some patients, if you're really worried about them at the start and they don't have any follow up, you could tell them to come back to see you in the urgent care again. But you might consider treating them from the start if you're really worried about them not following up. So in terms of antibiotic choices, I would say first line is usually your amoxicillin or augmentin. If they're penallergic, you might think about doxycycline or a third-generation cephalosporin like cefixime or cefpidoxime. Complications. And then we've got to worry, though, about complications. So that was uncomplicated sinusitis, but, you know, if there are definitely serious complications of untreated and progressive sinusitis, Mel, what do we look for? Yeah, so this is really important, and I want to make it very clear that the vast majority of people that come in to see you have uncomplicated sinusitis. It's of a viral origin and really needs nothing more than symptomatic care. That's the vast majority of people. But your job is also to find the needle in the haystack, and that means good history and physical exams. So here are just some of the complications. And this is, for almost all of them, spread of that infection outside the sinus, and it's bacterial. So periorbital cellulitis, and this is the person who's got a big swollen eye that's red, with some swelling, but classically when they move their eye, they don't have any pain. Orbital cellulitis is now when the infection is back behind the orbit, it's into where the musculature is. Now they're going to have pain on eye movements. That eyeball is going to be poking out. They're going to have proptosis. They're going to have diplopia. They're going to have fever. These people usually look pretty sick. It doesn't take much of a genius to walk into the room and go, oh my gosh, what is crawling out of your head? 
via your eyeball. <laughs> yeah. There's subperiosteal abscesses, which is, it's an abscess which occurs sort of on the bone there. There's a lot of different named versions of these. So you talked about one of them. This can go into frank osteomyelitis. And the classic one in the frontal lobe is Pott's puffy tumor. When I was a resident, we used to have these like grand rounds things with the surgeons and the surgeons were all super mean and everybody was always unwilling to speak up. And there was this case where somebody who had, had trauma wound up having on the image, it looked like a Pott's puffy tumor. And this really mean old surgeon guy was just like, does anybody know what this is? It was really quiet. And I put my hand up and I was like, oh, and he was like, you. You there in the back, you stand up. What is it? And I was like, Pot's puffy tumor. And he was very surprised that I knew that. And so he kept saying, Pot's puffy tumor, Pot's puffy tumor. And so then for a week, everybody called me Pot's puffy tumor. <laughs> it was really sad. But anyway. You do a really good British accent. Pot's puffy tumor. May I have some more? <laughs> yeah. So it's complication of frontal sinusitis. Get that osteomyelitis of the frontal bone and you see that poofiness of the, this thing in the middle of their forehead. Just so anytime you see that, you got to worry about that. And I guess back in the old days, that used to be TB as well. Yeah. TB like to live in there, which is pretty gross. You can also get things like meningitis, mm. brain abscesses, mm -hmm. which is, you know, the person's pretty sick at that point and they're altered. Kevin's sinus thrombosis. Yeah, that one's tricky. That one is really tough, but it's terrifying because that can kill you. It has a really high mortality. So you've got all these sinuses and then you've got all these veins and are at the base of your brain and then they can get infected. And now you've got an infected venous system, which now thromboses. And then the, it's, this is bad. They look sick. I got to tell you about a case. I had really sad case. Yeah. When I was an intern in Australia, I had a guy come in who looked really sick and I was just an intern. I'm like, this person's really sick. Now this is back in the day where the sort of the urgent care slash emergency department that I was working in, I was the most senior person there and there was no other doc around. Mm. So I'm like, this person's really sick. And he gave me a story like sinusitis and it took me hours to get this person to get seen by somebody. And there weren't many CT scanners in Melbourne, Australia. This was way long ago. And over the course of about 12 hours while I was trying to get him out, he got sicker and sicker and sicker. Mm. And the person I was sending them to at the big hospital said, well, don't give him antibiotics because he could have meningitis and we want to do an LP and oh, we want to no. do cultures. Oh, no. And so I finally got in there and he came in talking to me and left altered. Mm. And then uh, when I followed him up, he actually died. Oh, and gosh. he died of a subdural empyema. So he had one of these complications that then became a, an abscess and then he died. And this was back in the day when like, don't treat an infectious disease until we know exactly what it is. And he sat on the ward for two days <gasps> while they were, you know, waiting to get oh, the culture no. results back and all this stuff. And so that uh, story is to remind you that sinusitis is almost always bad. I mean, not bad. It's fine. Yeah, scratch that. <laughs> but... Do a good history and physical and sick people are sick. <laughs> now you know where the $3.4 billion in spending comes from, <laughs> from stories like that. No, I mean, seriously, though, you know, most sinusitis is uncomplicated. And if you do like patient education and a watch weight kind of thing, almost all of them will improve. They might have like lingering symptoms, but they should start improving to the point where you think, like, you know, they're going to get over this within the four week timetable of acute sinusitis. But really, people who do have things like a severe or persistent global headache, that should get your attention. Mm -hmm. Periorbital edema, inflammation, erythema, that should get your attention. 
if they have vision changes, even if it's like subject, if they tell you that their vision is altered, but you can't pick up diplopia, it doesn't matter. Like then you got to start thinking like, oh, sinusitis plus vision changes. That's not good. If you note abnormal extraocular movements or proptosis, or they say it hurts when they move their eyes, or, you know, you do have to check these people. You do have to do their neuro exams. Like if they have a cranial nerve palsy, that's, you better sit up and take notice. And then obviously if they have like meningismus or altered mental status or like your other signs of increased intracranial pressure, and hopefully you're not going to miss those things, but those are people that you do not pass go. You need to go to the emergency department right now. We're going to call 911 and get you there. Summary. So let's summarize all this, shall we get it? Let's. If you're awake, alert, oriented, and you're not immune compromised, and you've got a viral syndrome and your sinus hurts or both sinuses hurts, the initial treatment for that person is a kiss on the forehead, some Tylenol, some anti-inflammatory agents, some decongestants, and uh, expectation that this is going to get better soon. If they're elderly, if they're sick looking, if they've got any of these things you just talked about, their eyeballs are poking out and they've got double vision, that's a four alarm fire. But then there's that group in the middle where like they're a bit older and you're not exactly sure what's going on, whether it's viral or bacterial. I think the most important thing is follow-up. The expectation is that most of these people are going to get better over a reasonably short period of time. But if it's prolonged, if they get sick, it's really important to tell them, here are the things to look out for, progressive headache, diplopia, all of these terrifying things. These are the things to come back for. Otherwise, the expectation should be that, I'm sorry, that hurts. It's going to get better though. You'll be fine. Thanks, Mel. Rural Medicine Talks. Greetings all. It's Vanessa Cardi here, back for another Rural Medicine piece. And I want to set the scene for you. It was a late summer evening in a small rural community and the days were getting shorter and the air was getting cooler. I was working a fairly busy emergency room shift that same day when a 52-year-old male patient presented with abdominal pain and mild nausea. The nurse triaged him as a P3, put him on a stretcher in a room and came back to give me a heads up. The patient had told the nurse that he was waiting for gallbladder surgery for recurrent bouts of biliary colic, and he said that the pain he was having now was pretty similar to those previous gallstone attacks. While he did have some morphine at home in case of such an attack, he'd actually always been scared to take them without medical supervision after hearing so many terrible news stories about opiates. The patient's vitals at triage were unremarkable except for a heart rate in the 90s, but the nurse said he was in a fair bit of pain, so that all seemed to fit. I asked the nurse to do an ECG, put in an IV, and draw some labs, and once I had signed off on the ECG that looked fine, I ordered some dimenhydrinate for the nausea. I was actually able to get to see him pretty quickly, so when I went in to see him, the anti-nausea meds hadn't really fully kicked in yet, and he was still feeling pretty sick to his stomach. And he was also in a lot of pain. He said the pain had started an hour or so ago, and it had snuck up on him out of nowhere. He hadn't eaten for several hours when it started, but it felt the same as his other episodes of biliary colic. He had epigastric and right upper quadrant, left upper quadrant pain even, and some nausea. No fever or chills, no pain anywhere else, no actual vomiting, no urinary symptoms. He hadn't had a bowel movement yet that day, but he thinks he'd had one the day before. No signs of upper or lower GI bleeding, no chest pain, no respiratory symptoms. On exam, when I saw him, his heart rate was 96, his blood pressure was 143 on 65, SATs were 97 and he was afebrile. He was able to talk, but he was clearly in a degree of discomfort. And during the interview, he had episodes of worsening pain that made him curl up and sort of go silent for several seconds at a time. His abdomen did not appear to be distended on exam, but it was difficult to assess for peritonitis because of his large body habitus. And also he had a lot of voluntary guarding. But one thing that was reassuring was that he was able to move around on the bed without too much discomfort. 
His pain definitely seemed to be worse in the epigastrium and upper quadrants, but not clearly worse on one side or the other. And the rest of the exam was unremarkable. So for a patient with clear biliary colic, I don't always order labs, but they'd already been drawn up. And there was just something a little odd here, so I asked for a CBC, creat, lights, LFTs, and bilirubin. I also threw in a lipase just because he did have some midline and more left upper quadrant pain, so I wanted to be sure this wasn't an early pancreatitis from perhaps an impacted stone. I asked for an IV NS bolus of 500 cc's and 5 milligrams of morphine IV, and I went off to review his chart. So he was diagnosed with cholelithiasis about 18 months prior. He had been booked for surgery, but then the COVID pandemic hit, and the surgery was delayed repeatedly, initially by the hospital due to capacity issues, and then by the patient because of the isolation rules. You see, one of the ways that we managed to keep COVID out of some of our most remote communities was to have strict isolation policies in place, where patients had to isolate for five to seven days in the south after a procedure or any appointment, and then another five to seven days in the north upon their return. Our communities were putting people up in hotel rooms, both in the south and the north, in order to facilitate this, and clearly it was very hard on everyone. This will be one of the many serious side effects of the pandemic. So many people missing follow-up appointments or surgeries because they could not manage to follow these strict isolation rules. Now, once Omicron hit and it managed to get into the community and kind of everywhere, these rules were gradually disbanded. But for two years, our patients had to weigh the benefits of in-person follow-ups or procedures with the risks of travel and the difficulties of isolation. Massive amounts of days lost from work. Massive amounts of days away from family. It wasn't an easy time for many people, and the effect of all these delays in care are going to be long-lasting, and we probably haven't even really begun to understand the impacts fully yet. So, back to his story. So he'd had three episodes of biliary colic since that diagnosis 18 months ago. The episodes had always been pretty typical. They would come on after eating goose or some other rich meal, and he would come to the emergency room each time, despite having a prescription for pain meds, because he was simply nervous about using the morphine. His symptoms usually got better after a dose of morphine PO and some antiemetics, and he was usually home within about four to six hours of being triaged. Of note, he also had a history of type 2 diabetes, hypertension, he'd had a previous NSTEMI, he had CKD stage 2, and he had some early signs of diabetic retinopathy. He'd also had his appendix out as a child, and he had a 30-pack year history of cigarette smoking. And of note, very helpfully, on the ultrasound where his gallstones were officially diagnosed 18 months ago, his abdominal aorta was totally normal in appearance. In terms of his diabetes, they were pretty well controlled overall. His sugars today were 11, or in US um, units, 198. So after a few hours, I got his labs back, and they showed a white blood cell count of 16, normal hemoglobin, creatinine of 110, normal lights, normal lipase, and normal LFTs and bilirubin. Nothing too interesting, really, except for perhaps that white count being a bit higher than I might have expected. I headed off to see him again and was reminding myself to treat the patient and not the labs, and I was hoping that he would be feeling better and just ready to go home like he had on previous times. But when I walked into the room, he was not feeling better. He was curled up in a ball, and he was making retching sounds. He said the pain meds had helped for about 30 minutes, but then the pain came back much worse, and this time the pain was constant. His heart rate was now 110. He was still afebrile, his sats were fine, and his blood pressure was 132 over 89. I checked his abdomen again, and this time I noted that it was much harder for him to move around in the bed to change positions. Lying flat was very painful, and his abdomen was diffusely tender. I couldn't hear any bowel sounds, but he was also moaning in pain, so there was perhaps an explanation there as well. So to me, this was no longer acting like a typical episode of biliary colic. I tried to get a better sense from him of his usual biliary colic histories and find out if this is how he always progressed, 
and he confirmed that the way things were going now was very unusual. He also mentioned that in the past four or five days leading up to the episode today, he'd had these little mini sort of tiny episodes of abdominal pain. They never lasted more than 20 or 30 minutes, so he never sought care for them. But he did say that that pattern was unusual as well. I tried to find out if there'd been anything else different in the last few days that would fit this change of pattern. And in retrospect, he says maybe his appetite had decreased, and he said, yes, he did feel a little bit off. So here I was really having to battle my anchoring bias. I had pretty quickly pegged this man as a case of biliary colic after my initial history and physical, but things were leading me away from that now. So this is a key, key point of this story. In emergency medicine, one of the real big mistakes you can make, one that I used to make all the time, is early closure. I've seen this before. I've decided what it is. And now what I'm going to do is ignore all of the other information that comes in or as things change, I'm going to say, yeah, it's still what I thought it was 30 minutes ago. Don't do that. When the patient changes, when the information changes, do not have early closure, but do as Vanessa has done, like, mm, I'm missing something. What else could be going on here? I ordered some more analgesia for him and switched him to Ondansetron for the nausea, and then asked for an abdominal x-ray series. Remember, we don't have a scan where I work, so this was one of my only options. And the plane film looked pretty unremarkable, with only three air fluid levels, but his pain began to get much, much worse after the x-ray. I asked for repeat labs at that time and threw in a venous blood gas as well. Now with this sudden spike of intense pain, he was tacky at 115, his blood pressure was 110 on 60, sats were still fine, respirate was 24, he was breathing fast with that pain, and his temperature was now 38, or 100.4. His abdomen was now very tender, and he was having a lot more pain moving around in the bed or when changing position. I asked our ECRE technician to help me do an abdominal ultrasound, and all we could see across the epigastrium was a large, almost rectangular structure that was mostly obscured by intestinal gas. If you imagine a drawing of the human GI tract and think of the transverse colon, that is basically what the image we had looked like, except it was grainy and black and white and didn't have useful labels on it. We couldn't really identify what it was, but I assumed, just from the appearance and the location, that it was some part of the large bowel. Although I was also very worried that it was perhaps part of the pancreas, given its location and the degree of pain that was involved. So the sight of what looked like a gas-filled intestinal structure on ultrasound made me think bowel obstruction, but I kept getting pulled away from that diagnosis because the abdominal series didn't show any signs of this. But if it wasn't that, then what could it be? His aorta was normal, we couldn't actually see his gallbladder well because his entire upper abdomen was obscured by this odd rectangular structure, and there were no other signs of acute pathology. His labs came back, his white blood cells count had gone to 22, his creatinine was 115 despite fluid, his pH was 7.28, and his lights were still normal. Now, mesenteric ischemia was certainly moving up on my list of concerns, as was an abscess, but from where or how? Uh, intersusception, given the intense and colicky and worsening nature of the pain, perhaps this could be it, and maybe the lead point was an undiagnosed tumor, or perhaps there was a hernia that I wasn't able to pick up on exam. And it was this unsatisfying differential combined with worsening clinical status and labs that prompted me to call for the transfer. The receiving doctor was great, and while he said that this was probably a partial bowel obstruction that would resolve on its own with time and bowel rest and some NG tube decompression, he accepted the patient for a scan as he just sounded, well, sick. It was another five hours before the plane arrived to get him, and I'm telling you, I was very happy to see this plane land. 
Because while waiting for the plane, he had an episode of acute escalating pain that lasted 15 minutes and then suddenly eased off abruptly. Now that might sound reassuring, but with that easing off came a drop in blood pressure. He went from a systolic blood pressure in the 110s to 120s to something closer to the 85s, 90s, and a heart rate in the 120s despite ongoing fluid boluses and maintenance. I had already started him on broad-spectrum antibiotics by this point and was monitoring him very closely. Now, the pain was much improved now, which was great, because given that his blood pressure was quite low, I was grateful I wasn't going to be pushing analgesics that would have further tanked his pressure. But he became more and more hypotensive while waiting for the transport, so I drew up pressers to have at the bedside and kept some fluids going. He never actually needed those pressers in the hospital, but about one hour into the flight, his MAP dropped to 55 and his tachycardia was worsening, so the pressers were started. Once he got to the hospital in the south, about 13 to 14 hours after first presenting to my emergency room, he was quickly examined and then taken straight to the CT scan. So, before you get the answer, what do you think's going on? What would you have done differently? But what is your differential? Do you have it in your head? Do, 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 do. What are you thinking now? Do, 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 do. Where it was revealed that he had had a small bowel obstruction that had actually perforated. Really? I didn't see that coming. I thought, 100%, this is a intersusception. But I was wrong. The source of the obstruction was unclear at first, but the emergency room doctor was told by the radiologist that perhaps it was a foreign body. This all seemed a bit odd, so we all waited to hear the results of the surgery that he rapidly underwent. When they opened him up in the operating room, they did indeed find the bowel obstruction that had perforated, and they found that foreign body. The foreign body was in fact a stone, but not a gallstone. This was a stone from a peach. Yep, a peach pit. It turns out that about a week or so prior, he had accidentally swallowed an entire peach pit, but aside from it being a bit scratchy on the way down, as he said, he hadn't thought anything else of it. He had kept eating and pooping and doing his usual thing. He had had some episodes of abdominal pain that would pass on their own, And while he slowly lost his appetite and began to feel a bit unwell over the course of several days, it was only the acute onset of pain that he attributed to gallstones that actually brought him to the hospital. So from what we can piece together is that he had probably a partial small bowel obstruction from this peach pit that was likely blocking the ileocecal valve on and off, causing the intermittent episodes of pain in the several days leading up to his presentation. I would imagine that in this process, the bowel likely became inflamed in that area, And then once the peach pit got stuck again, the obstruction was no longer partial and the pressure on the bowel wall that was already inflamed sort of subacutely meant that it perforated relatively quickly. In retrospect, we likely saw this perforation happen when he experienced a rapid escalation in pain and then a fairly abrupt decrease in pain. And then soon after, a drop in his blood pressure as intestinal fluid presumably leaked into his peritoneum and he started to get worse. Peach pit small bowel obstruction leading to uh, perforation was absolutely on my differential diagnosis. But, you know, that's why I'm a legend in my own mind. So what lessons did I learn from this? I think the biggest lesson I learned from this was how quickly I anchored on biliary colic as the most likely diagnosis. From the moment the triage nurse told me there was a patient with his typical gallstone pain, I was already heading down that investigation and treatment pathway in my head. I guess I gave a nod to a differential by asking for an ECG in someone who was at risk of cardiac issues. But once that was checked off, it was just so easy to keep thinking about biliary colic. 
Should I have asked for a scan earlier? I mean, we don't have one, but in retrospect, of course I would say that I wish I could have scanned this patient in my emergency room right away, or had him whisked away in an airplane to the nearest scanner in the south. That way, maybe he would not have perforated his bowels. But in reality, I'm not sure I could have pushed for a transfer or a scan any earlier than I did in this case, as when he arrived, he was clinically stable and had a very reasonable alternative diagnosis that seemed most plausible. And this is one of the challenges of rural medicine, trying to outwit the disease process that may or may not be brewing inside your patient. Another lesson I learned is that I want to better understand how this patient's plain films were largely unremarkable, but on ultrasound there was this unusual structure. The blockage was proximal to the large bowel, but this structure on ultrasound looked so much like I would imagine a large bowel would look like an ultrasound, so I need to bone up on my abdominal ultrasound findings. I'm pleased to say that after all of this, the patient has done well and is back at work and back to his normal life. He said that there are only two things that are different about his life now, that he has a scar on his abdomen and that he seems to have developed an aversion to peaches. I cannot imagine why. Thank you so much, everyone. Chat with you next month. All right, we are back. Part two of Fever in a Returning Traveler. And I'm joined once again by Aisha Khatib, who is a travel medicine tropical disease expert. And we are now going into part two. We gave ourselves a little break there to try and process all that information. And now we're going to look a little bit more in depth in terms of testing we might do, treatments, and maybe even tackle scary incubation periods. Now let's talk about the time of um, the traveler's return. Does it make a difference in terms of when they're presenting with the fever and how long they've been back? I'm assuming you're going to start talking about incubation periods, which is when the brain matter starts to leak out of my ear, because I can never keep all this stuff straight. But I'm glad you're here to help us through this. (laughs) (laughs) Right, Vanessa. So the incubation period is very important. An incubation period is the time it takes when somebody is exposed and infected to the time when they may start to present with symptoms. It's really important to know the duration of the trip and the point of potential exposure and also the time since return, okay? Because that will kind of give you a clue in as to, you know, could this be malaria? Could this be dengue? Or could this be something else? For example, if somebody gets to a destination and they have fever in their first week, it's not malaria, okay? Because it takes at least one week for the malaria to incubate before they start having presentation for malaria. Whereas if somebody went to Thailand a month ago and now they're presenting to the emergency department with fever, this is not going to be dengue fever, right? Dengue really presents more within the first two weeks of presentation in the incubation period. You're not going to remember all this off the top of your head unless you're, you know, especially trained in it. Not having any shame in terms of looking it up or asking, we're going to include a table in the show notes that will give you a sort of a quick overview of these incubation periods that will help you at least start to narrow it down. But again, if you're dealing with a patient who has potentially a serious infectious disease returning from a trip, you're probably going to be calling for help and talking to a specialist as well. But it can really at least start to narrow down while you're waiting to get the patient seen by uh, the infectious disease specialists for sure. High-risk populations. There are certain groups of people that we worry about a little bit more. And some of them I can think off the top of my head would be pediatric population, the elder population, patients who are pregnant, 
those who are immunocompromised, and um, I guess also those who are visiting friends and relatives, that sort of traveler group. Do you want to go through just quickly and give some highlights of things you have to worry about for each of those groups specifically? These special groups, they don't tend to present typically, okay? So they may have more atypical presentations. And the other issue with these patients is they tend to have more severe disease. So they may not present like severe disease. They may initially present to you with more mild disease. Like, for example, pregnant women may present with more mild presentation of malaria, but they tend to get sick very, very quickly. And they tend to then lose their reserve very quickly and kind of tank quickly. If a child or a pregnant woman comes in and you're suspecting malaria, but they don't look so bad, you know, you're like, okay, I'll test you and then send you out and get you followed up. Might not be the best decision to do that. It might be better to have them admitted and have them seen in hospital before sending them out to make sure, because often these cases can become quite sick quite fast. Out of all these categories, I would say, you know, the VFR traveler is probably your most high-risk traveler. And when I talk about VFR, I'm talking about someone who we call visiting friends and relatives. The experience for VFRs is they get a higher incidence of travel-related infectious diseases, such as malaria and typhoid and TB and hepatitis. And often they don't seek pre-travel consultation. They tend to have more local exposure and tend to do higher risk activities with locals. But the key thing here is they often are a lot of vaccine preventable infections. So this is something that really we can target. This group is something we can target to really recommend appropriate preventative measures. For example, malaria was a really big one in VFRs um, that we're seeing. There was one study in the GeoSentinel network, and disproportionately, VFRs are affected by malaria. Although their severe disease may be lower than in tourists and business travelers, but often that's the issue is then they present and they kind of present with more mild disease, so they, they kind of get missed. So interesting. So much more complicated than just a fever in someone who's coming home from a certain country. It's like there's so many different layers. And as you say, the risk tolerances. And, um, you know, if you're visiting family who live in a rural area and you're doing things that you wouldn't do if you're necessarily on a tourist trip around a capital city. So very interesting. And again, always coming back to that history, figuring out why they went on the trip. You can't just find out where they went. You need to find out why they went and what they were doing there. Yeah. And often, you know, I get a lot of travelers to India, for example, or Africa. I'm like, well, I live there and I've, you know, I've been, I went back five years ago and I, I grew up there and I had malaria and, you know, I don't get malaria that bad anymore because there is some innate immunity that develops over time when you're there. But it's important to know that when you leave those endemic areas and you've lived outside these VFRs, they, they lose that immunity. Okay. So then they're just as risk as somebody who's going in who's um, immunologically naive for the first time. That's a really good point. Very good point to remember. Testing. What would be some of the tests that you would order sort of right off the bat? I mean, obviously, assuming they're not hemorrhaging in front of you, you know, the most common tests that we need to remember to order. The key laboratories that you would want to do after you do a full history and physical is first and foremost, a malaria screen. Okay, depending on if they've been to a malaria endemic place in the last year, you would want to do uh, blood cultures times two. Okay. And then your basic blood work that you usually do in the emergency. So you have your CBC, your liver function tests, your electrolytes, creatinine. You may uh, want to do your analysis. 
plus or minus a chest x-ray. And then the other thing that I would, you know, especially kind of given today's day and age with COVID, an NP swab is definitely something that we would recommend to do because 25% of our federal return travelers had the flu. The other thing would be, you know, is an STI panel, depending on risk exposures and blood work. So including HIV, syphilis, hepatitis, acute HIV can present with fever, rash, diarrhea. And this could be something that was an exposure when they traveled. So ask and then test, <laughs> right? And then of course, it's very specific, certain tests that you may or may not want to do in the emergency room. I would say the only one that I would probably say would be do a dengue serology. If the incubation period is less than two weeks and they travel to somewhere that was endemic to it. And why that's helpful, because you won't get that result back in the emergency, but by the time they've been referred to somebody like ID or the tropical disease unit or something like that, that result will be back and it'll guide management. So it helps to have that done at least ordered in the emergency, as well as to consider maybe like a stool culture just to have that ordered in the emergency. Something like a stool ONP, I probably wouldn't necessarily order there unless, you know, it's been like a prolonged course. But if it's really an acute course in the last than two weeks, I, I wouldn't even worry about doing that in the emergency. The key take home here would be that anyone who's traveled to a malaria endemic area should really be considered to have malaria until proven otherwise, because that's what's going to kill them. Out of all of these diseases that we talk about, that is probably your potentially most life-threatening. And it's really important to repeat the malaria smear and the rapid antigen. Usually it's done together at least three times over 24 to 48 hours. There's a lot of variation in the way that the malaria smears are read but also you can get what we call sequestering. In somebody who's really, really sick, the parasites tend to sequester to the organs and they're really starting to affect the organ and cause organ damage like the brain or, or what the spleen, for example, and it may not show up in the blood. So you may do a smear, for example, and it doesn't look that bad or their parasitemia, like the level doesn't look that bad. And then all of a sudden they tank because they have a very high load of the disease and their body can't compensate and they basically go into multi-organ failure. If you've tested and they've picked up even a low parasite load, admit them. Admit them for treatment because they may present 48 hours later with a more severe disease that you probably didn't realize was as severe because it didn't present on the blood work initially. So call for help and have a low threshold you know, to admit them if they have any signs of unstable um, vital signs or any laboratory derangements, even if they look like they're walking and talking and they're perfectly fine. So with the patient there in front of you and they have the fever, you know, unknown origin, returning traveler, are you going to start empiric antibiotics or certain treatments right away? Or are you going to wait for certain test kit results to come back? If you have somebody who screens positive for malaria, okay, and they're stable, you can start them on an initial oral medication, like either chloroquine or um, you're going to use malarone, depending. But obviously, if they're sick um, and they have a high load, they're going to need IV artisanate. In regards to other types of severe infection, like if you know, you're know you suspecting a bacterial sepsis or you're suspecting enteric fever, the results for you know typhoid and the results for rickettsiosis workup it does take a little long to come back. And in that time frame, people can get worse. So I think it's important, you know, to use your clinical judgment. But in the context of if you're suspecting someone with an undifferentiated fever, 
without kind of an etiology and malaria kind of has been ruled out and they haven't been improving in the next like 48 hours, then I think it's important to consider starting. And if, for example, if they travel to India or the Indian subcontinent or Southeast Asia, you could start azithromycin for enteric fever, plus or minus doxycycline to cover any rickettsioses, because those that do tend to take a little bit more time. And the azithromycin, this is all in like kind of the guidelines that you can look up. Usually you'd start 1,000 milligrams once a day for five days, or doxycycline 100 milligrams twice a day for seven days. And usually you'll cover the antimicrobial resistance kind of from that side. But again, that's really if it's undifferentiated, you know, negative malaria smears, patients not improving over 48 hours, and other cultures or tests that are already been ordered are pending, right? So you want to make sure you've already done the blood cultures and everything like that before you start anything. Yeah, this is definitely one of those situations where I am calling my specialist early on so I don't have to poke the patient too many times to, you know, keep adding on labs that I forgot to order and also to make sure we're getting everything we need before we start the treatment because we don't want to confuse the picture for those seeing the patients in the following days. So I think this has been a really great and um, intense discussion on this, and there's so much for me to remember. I'm definitely going to have to go back and listen again, but I want to see if I can highlight some of the things you've said. Obviously, depending where you are, whether you're in the emergency room, urgent care, a rural location, or an urban center, or a travel clinic, you need to use your available resources. And um, do not hesitate to call for help. Call the infectious disease specialists. I'm sure your infectious disease colleagues would be excited to get this call, as opposed to us calling about another MRSA outbreak on the ward. So take a really good history. And really, you need to ask lots and lots and lots of very specific questions. You need to really find out about the country and region of exposure, what type of exposures they had there, were they in an urban environment or rural environment, what they got up to while they were over there, why they were over there. And then, of course, um, looking at the clinical manifestations, symptoms they may have had while they were still overseas, and did anything change? Did they get treated while they were there? What did they get treated with? And then also how it has progressed since they've come home. And really get those timelines nailed down. It can be difficult sometimes to get the days and weeks, you know, all sorted out. But it's really worth your while to do this because it's going to give you a much better understanding of where they fit into certain incubation periods. And you really obviously want to prioritize addressing and urgently treating any rapidly progressive transmissible infections. Um, you're going to want to advise obviously public health. Remember that certain symptoms, initial symptoms of both severe and mild infections may be the same. There may be crossover. So reevaluating your patient. Patient may look good one day and then the next day have, you know, hemorrhagic shock, which is just in case you weren't aware, that's a bad presentation. Don't be scared to use the empirical treatment once you've gone through those algorithms, you've figured out where they've been traveling and, and you might need to isolate these patients as well. Don't forget the malaria can linger for years, right? So they you may have a fever today, but their exposure may have been a long time ago. So asking not just have you traveled in the last couple of weeks, but going back in time. And of course, a fever in a returning traveler doesn't necessarily mean it's infectious. It could be a DVT, it could be PE, it could be a new presentation of um, neoplasia, it could be an autoimmune response, it could be a drug reaction. So remember, certainly very possible that it's infectious, but you can't anchor on that right away. And while it can seem overwhelming to have all of these different syndromes and all of these different diseases that have these different manifestations, if you know some of the main typical ones, I think that's really going to help you. And then you're going to be able to look and piece together based on your patient's history and their travel history, what is most likely based on where they've been. And then you can go from there. And remember, you're not alone. Reach out to your travel medicine colleagues, to your infectious disease colleagues. Does that sound about right? 
That was an incredible summary, Vanessa. <laughs> Very impressed. Anyone who presents with a fever, ask about travel in the last year, okay? And the other thing is destination equals disease. Geographic risk really predicts disease when we're talking about travelers. So the correlation will really help inform your decision-making about diagnostic testing, algorithmic approaches, and optimizing treatment plans. So yeah, and if you're not sure, there's lots of different resources out there that we will um, recommend to you. You can always call a colleague, call a friend, and you know, if in doubt, follow an algorithmic approach. Do the same thing every time with your basics and you, you will catch what you need to catch with the algorithm. Thank you so much for this and for all that you do out there to help all these poor febrile travelers. And I hope to have you on again soon. Thanks, Aisha. Thank you so much. Take care. Oh, yeah. That's right. Chicka, 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 chicka. Primary Care Medical Abstracts. With Ken and Steve. Welcome to the April edition of PCMA. Spring has sprung, the grass is riz, I wonder where Steve is. Oh, there he is right there. You ready to go, Steve? So excited for April. Can you tell I've got like spring fever here? I'm ready to go. Yeah, absolutely. Woo-wee. All right, so we got 10 papers. Going to critically appraise them. Always something we can learn, even if it's a crappy paper. We may learn something about methodology or what not to do or what not to publish, something. There's always something we can find in these papers. And we pick them for a reason, to give some high-quality critical appraisal to the listeners. Yes, great stuff this month. Yeah, so let's dig right in. I've got number one. Paper one. So abstract number one is a five-year outcome of the Danish cardiovascular screening trial, and it was published in the New England Journal of Medicine 2022. So start April with a screening paper. So this was a multi-center, parallel group, randomized control trial involving men 65 to 74 years of age living in Denmark. Now they randomized them in a one to two ratio. So one man was invited for every two men who were not invited to undergo this screening. Now the advanced screening that they set up was to do a non-contrast CTCA for a calcium score and detect aneurysms and atrial fibrillation an ankle brachial blood pressure for peripheral artery disease and hypertension, and blood work to diagnose diabetes mellitus and hypercholesterolemia. They had a really good primary outcome, all-cause mortality, alive and dead. They got almost 47,000 men randomized, and about two-thirds in the invited group actually went through with the screening, so one-third didn't. The median follow-up was almost six years, with the intention-to-treat analysis of 12.6% in the invited group for that primary outcome of death and 13.1% in the control group for mortality. So there was no statistical difference in mortality. Now, the hazard ratio for stroke was statistically better for the invited group. That was a secondary outcome, but not for MIs, aortic dissection or aortic rupture. And there were no significant between-group differences when it came to safety. So it seems that inviting asymptomatic men, because this is screening, for advanced screening, 
doesn't seem to have a mortality benefit. Now, it could be, Steve, that there just wasn't enough time and maybe five, six years isn't enough for the lines to diverge. And only two-thirds of those invited accepted to be screened, and it's unsure if those screened are like those who were not screened. And the results also do not have external validity to women, because they only included men, men older or younger than the age range that they were looking at, non-white people, and those living in other countries. And so I looked up, you know, our favorite little U.S. Preventative Service Task Force, that little group out of the U.S. that does such great work, And they currently don't recommend routine screening for adults for cardiovascular disease with ECGs, stress tests, or CTCAs. Yeah, and basically if the person screened positive, it would lead to recommendations for general cardiovascular prevention. So, you know, you should eat well and you should exercise. They also would recommend a statin for some patients. So you might not do that if you didn't have the screening. But actually, most of the interventions were just general good advice for life anyway. And the 2018 USPSTF recommendations, which you hinted at, they actually give an eye recommendation to these unique cardiovascular risk assessments like the coronary artery calcium score. So I don't know if this might even tip the USPSTF to recommend maybe against it if this is strong enough evidence to recommend against those kinds of things. But we're seeing lots of coronary artery calciums here in Phoenix, and I try to discourage them at every possible. We've talked about that on PCMA before, but this is pretty convincing evidence that a lot of these fancy screenings are not helpful. Bottom line. This randomized control trial does not support advanced screening of men aged 65 to 74 years of age to prevent cardiovascular disease or death. Paper two. Abstract number two, we're going to go from screening the older people to screening the youngest people. And so this is the utility of the ages and stages questionnaire to identify developmental delay in children aged 12 to 60 months. This is a systematic review and meta-analysis from JAMA Pediatrics, October 2022. Many of you will be familiar with the ages and stages questionnaire. We're going to abbreviate that as ASQ. It's a commonly used parent-completed developmental screening tool. It's designed for kids one month to five and a half years of age, and it gives parents questions in five areas, language, gross motor, fine motor, problem solving, and personal adaptive skills. They recommend two cutoff zones on the ASQ. If it's less than two standard deviations below the mean, then that means for sure you should refer the patient. And it's between one and two standard deviations below the mean, that means you should monitor it with with close follow-up. It's relatively inexpensive. You know, the main resource is the time in your office, and the parents can be involved. So how useful is it? Does it identify children that are appropriate for age or patients that might need timely intervention for screening? So the authors did a systematic review and meta-analysis to evaluate the ASQ's utility as a screening or diagnostic tool to identify development delay in children ages 12 to 60 months. They searched a bunch of databases, included studies where the ASQ is performed at age 12 to 60 months, and formal developmental assessments were done within two months of the ASQ. So that's kind of like the gold standard comparison. If you're going to check a tool, You have to have a gold standard tool to compare it to. 
They assess the bias using the Quadus 2 tool, and they use grade to assess the certainty of evidence. So well done, systematic review. And the best part, they use likelihood ratios. Alleluia, nerds unite in glee. (laughs) And so you remember that a likelihood ratio positive, more than five is, you know, moderately decent, and a likelihood ratio negative less than 0.2 is useful. And they call these moderate usefulness if you pass that threshold. So what did they find? All the evidence is either low or very low certainty of evidence, which is remarkable because they found 43 studies, including 36 that they used in the meta-analysis. And bear with me, I'm going to give you some numbers here. It's a little bit, little bit in the weeds. I tried to simplify it as much as I could. Let's get into it. Let's say that your ASQ is less than two standard deviations. That's your cutoff for a positive or negative test, less than two standard deviations below what all the other kids are doing. And so to predict any delay in one or more domain, likelihood ratio positive 4.1, likelihood ratio negative 0.28. So that's kind of meh, doesn't quite make the five and the 0.2 cutoff. And they also talked about the area under the ROC curve, which was 0.86, which is kind of okay, but the I squared on that is 100%. So total, (laughs) complete heterogeneity between all the studies. That's like, it does not go to 11. That's the maximum it can go to. This was not apples and oranges. This was not apples and bagels. This was apples and tractors. I don't know. (laughs) Exactly. So that's the any delay in one or more domain. To predict severe delay in one or more domain, the likelihood ratio positive is 3.72, so worse, but the likelihood ratio negative is 0.20. So that's approaching useful, and that's a sensitivity of 0.84. So remember, a sensitive test that's negative rules something out. So this test is decent at predicting severe delay, which is probably useful. That might be what we'd want it for. If you look just at the motor domain, the likelihood ratio positive is 6.5. So that's good. If there is an abnormality in motor domain, then it's likely that that would be the final finding. And same with cognitive delay, likelihood ratio positive 6.5. So those are both good at ruling in. So the authors conclude that if the child passes all the ASQ domains, there's moderate probability they do not have severe developmental delay. That's low evidence, though. But if they fail the motor or the cognitive domain, there's moderate probability they have some motor or cognitive delay. Very low certainty of evidence. I've seen this recommended and rolled out in many offices. I think the main draw, the reason people use this, is because it's parent-driven. And, you know, it's also written in stone that at pediatric well exams, we have to ask some kind of developmental questions. It's not clear to me that ASQ is or isn't better than asking. Usually I ask eight or 10 questions which cover those domains. And that's screening. We don't even know if that's better than waiting for parents to express some kind of concern. Lots of times I'll have parents bring their kid in and say, my kid is not speaking. And, you know, then that's not screening. But we really do consider some kind of screening to be gold standard. 
And the ASQ is kind of okay, meh, if you're going to want to use some kind of screening intervention. I'm not sure this is a really useful test, and I certainly wouldn't consider it the gold standard. And if it's really good, like the best stuff it does is picking out severe, is that better than just me observing the child? Like clinical gestalt, how does that compare? Like I want a tool to be picking out the stuff that I have difficulty diagnosing, not the stuff that, oh yeah, you know, they're severe. They're going to have severe problems. I mean, hopefully we can pick those things up. So I guess if you start with, I accept that I need to do some kind of screening, which as far as I'm concerned is not proven, but certainly standard of care, then maybe the ASQ is as good as anything else that we're doing, but we don't know that for sure. Or is bad. Or is bad. bad. (laughs) Bottom line. Low-level evidence shows the ages and stages questionnaire is moderately helpful at ruling in or ruling out some types of developmental delay. Paper three. All right, abstract number three, informed health choices essay. And it's 3.2. The expected advantages should outweigh expected disadvantages. And this is in the Journal of the Royal Society of Medicine from 2022. And this is an open access series of articles from the James Lynn Library about using evidence in making decisions. And I would encourage listeners to download the entire series. It is really good and it is open access. So enjoy. So the summary of this article is that it provides, oh, that's right, my favorite number, five considerations. You wonder why I picked this one. Five considerations when weighing the pros and cons of a treatment. And so I'm just going to run through those five. The first one was whether the benefits and savings outweigh the harms and the cost of acting or not. Number one. So clinicians and policymakers should consider the potential benefits and the potential harms, costs, and other advantages and disadvantages of the treatment in question. Make sense? Number two. Consider the baseline risk or severity of the symptoms when estimating the size of the expected effects. And what that gets into is, you know, there's a spectrum of disease from very mild symptoms of disease to very, very severe disease. And those with more severe disease or symptoms will have the greater potential effect because it's hard to go from, you know, maybe 2% to 1%, but it's easier to go from 80%. You've got a lot of room to move on that one. Number three. How important each advantage and disadvantage is when weighing the pros and cons. In other words, hey, talk to your patients. What do they value? What do they prefer? Number four. How certain can you be about each advantage or disadvantage? And we just talked about that in the previous abstract. Like, what's your confidence in that? How certain are you? And certainty will depend on the strength or the quality of the evidence being used. Number five. And the fifth and final one is the need for further fair comparisons. And what they're getting at there is there's always uncertainty. We never actually get to the quote-unquote truth, with the truth being the best point estimate of an observed effect size. We never know exactly what it'll be, but we can find the best point estimate with a confidence interval around that point estimate. And so there'll always be some uncertainty, some imprecision, some fuzziness, but it can be reduced by doing further research and having participants in trials with a fair comparison as opposed to a straw comparison, or sometimes comparing them to a placebo 
when there is already an effective treatment, shouldn't we compare it against that perhaps to decrease the uncertainty? So to summarize, every intervention has potential benefits and potential harms. And these five specific recommendations in making evidence-based decisions align with the philosophy of evidence-based medicine. And it considers the strength of the evidence and clinical judgment and does engage with patients about their values and preferences. Yeah, it's a great essay. I feel like, you know, if we could apply this to all the articles that we review on PCMA, and I love that last one. It's like, because everyone always concludes, you know, in Journal Club, oh, more information is needed, more research is needed. But you also need to be able to say like, okay, this is probably the best that we're going to do. And But then also more research is needed. No, more good research is needed, as you've said a bunch of times. Bottom line. The expected advantages should outweigh the expected disadvantages in informed, healthy choices. Paper four. Abstract number four, association of direct acting antiviral therapy with liver and non-liver complications and long-term mortality in patients with chronic hepatitis C. This is from JAMA Internal Medicine, December 2022. And, um, oh, it's the USPSDF. I'm going to mention the USPSDF again. Should we have like a PCMA drinking game? Like take a drink of the Canadian whiskey that you gave me every time I say USPSDF. (laughs) So the USPSDF now recommends screening for hepatitis C in adults age 18 to 79. That's a B recommendation. And so what that implies is that if you find hepatitis C infection, there's something you can do to improve health outcomes. We talked about this recommendation on PCMA November 2020. So when the USPSTF made this recommendation, there was no direct evidence on the benefit of screening for HCV infection on health outcomes in asymptomatic adults. So they have to do a couple leaps of faith to get to the point where we're saying, okay, it's useful to screen. And one of them is that there's convincing evidence that new antivirals result in a sustained virologic response in greater than 95% of adults. And so in the 2020 update, the USPSTF now says there's adequate evidence of an association between sustained virologic response after antiviral therapy and improved health outcomes. Like Decreased risk of all-cause mortality, mortality due to liver disease, cirrhosis, hepatocellular carcinoma. And they actually found 13 studies that found an association with decreased all-cause mortality. And the use of the word association is very important there because it's not an RCT that proves the causality. So here again, the study that we're going to talk about today, the authors review a large cohort of insured patients to measure the association between direct acting antiviral therapy for hepatitis C, sustained virologic response, and morbidity and mortality related to liver or non-liver causes. So the study design is a retrospective cohort of over 240,000 patients with chronic hepatitis C. They have data from a large health claims database, and over 40,000 of those patients received one or more prescriptions for direct acting antiviral medication without interferon, and over 200,000 were untreated. So then they compare these two cohorts, the treated cohort versus the non-treated cohort. And the results, the all-cause mortality is substantially less in treated patients. 
36.5 per 1,000 person years versus 64.7 in untreated patients. So about 30 per 1,000 person years improved with direct acting antivirals. Liver decompensation similar, 28 versus 40 per 100,000 person years. And then they did a multi-regression analysis that showed that treated patients had better outcome for diabetes, chronic kidney disease, cardiovascular disease, hepatocellular carcinoma, and non-liver cancer. And so we know that a retrospective cohort study can't prove causality, but we have pretty strong non-direct evidence that direct antivirals for hepatitis C lead to sustained virologic response, but also improve patient-oriented outcomes. And the database here is insured patients. So that's obviously a subset. We don't know how it applies to uninsured or Medicaid-insured patients. And then there's a long-standing question of the prohibitive cost of this medication, and this is a really important health equity issue. Yeah, you touched on you know, the main issues there that those treated were different than those who weren't treated. And so you, you have to worry about what would the results be if it was a properly conducted randomized control trial? And I think that's what, you know, it would just be nice to have that done. Yeah, I think the ship has sailed for an extremely large randomized controlled trial of these yeah, direct yeah. antivirals. The initial studies were small enough that they could show the sustained virologic response. But even if they were following those patients long term, which I don't know if they are or not, I hope they are, you're not going to not treat patients now. So there's probably yeah. not going to be an RCT with tens of thousands of patients to show the actual proof that the direct acting antivirals improve mortality. And this gets back to, you know, asking the right questions and asking or using the right methodology, which we were talking about before. So now we're stuck to some degree with this, right? And we're going to always be stuck with association, association, association. And if they had conducted a properly designed study, RCT, in the beginning that was big enough, large enough, powered appropriately, and asking about clinical outcomes, you know, rather than um, a lab-oriented outcome, a loo, and that we're actually asking about a poo, a patient-oriented outcome, we wouldn't need all of these studies, right? We would have just said, yeah, we did one really good, well, I guess it's always nice to have more than one, but we did these properly conducted RCTs. Good. Yeah, and it's, I read recently, and the band played on, which is about the early AIDS epidemic in the US. And there's definitely a tension early on when you realize that you have a treatment for a disease. Should we do a really, you know, big deal, massive, long-term outcome, generalizable study? Or should we do a quick study that can get the medication out to market as fast as possible? And so I think that's certainly what happened in the early years of the hep C treatment, especially after the interferon regimens were so, like, the side effects were so bad. Then they came out with these medicines that had better side effects. And it was like, well, how long do we wait to get these out when, you know, patients can have a really big response to them? Yep. It's a challenge. Nobody said it was going to be easy. No. <laughs> no like <laughs> Science is hard. You heard it here. Title of the episode. Bottom line. Treatment of chronic hepatitis C with direct-acting antivirals is associated with improved morbidity and mortality. Paper 5. Abstract number 5. One step compared with 
two-step gestational diabetes screening and pregnancy outcome, a systematic review and meta-analysis. We're doing a lot of papers on screening this month, aren't we? Yeah, we are. I just realized that now, yeah. So the objective of this study was to estimate the short-term maternal and neonatal outcomes of one-step testing versus two-step testing for gestational diabetes. And these authors followed their Prisma and Moose guidelines. They searched multiple databases for English publications. And then they had the one-step test, which was based on the International Association of the Diabetes and Pregnancy Study Group protocol, or the two-step testing with the Carpenter-Couston criteria. So the primary outcome was the rate of large for gestational age, LGA, neonates, and they defined that as a birth weight 90th percentile or higher. There were lots of secondary outcomes as well as fetal and neonatal outcomes. So when they searched the world's literature, they found four RCTs. And you think, oh, okay, well, maybe they're small. No, 25,000 patients in four studies. Now, they also had 13 observational studies, no surprise here, over 700,000 patients. Now, four were considered high quality of those 13 observational studies and nine low quality. So you know what I'm going to be saying somewhere along this sort of with GIGO and stuff. So let's just focus in on the RCTs. They reported no statistical difference in the rate of large for gestational age neonates between using the one-step or the two-step approach. Now, the one-step was associated with higher rates of neonatal intensive care unit admissions and neonatal hypoglycemia. Uh, RCTs and observational studies reported that the one-step testing is associated with a lower rate of large for gestational age. So if you added those observational studies to the randomized control trials, you could show a statistical difference with the large for gestational neonates. But Again, higher rates of gestational diabetes diagnosis, treatment, NICU emissions, and neonatal hypoglycemia. Going back to the United States Preventative Service Task Force, they recommend screening of pregnant women after 24 weeks of gestation for gestational diabetes, but they don't recommend one step or two step. They just recommend screening. So they don't talk about which method should be used, just that you should screen. Now, this systematic review is an example of GIGO, garbage in, garbage out. The four RCTs didn't show a statistical difference, and they had 25,000 patients in it. So adding like 700,000 patients from observational data to move the needle to show that there was a statistical difference, they're just showing an association. It doesn't get us any closer to the quote-unquote truth. So um, yeah, I wasn't, uh, wasn't happy <laughs> with that. <laughs> We talked about one of the biggest RCTs in this systematic review, the Hillier paper in July of 2021 on PCMA. And it's not that often that a systematic review that shows no difference makes me feel pretty strongly that one of the methods is better. But I actually really feel pretty strongly that the two-step screening is better. It's easier to do because you don't have to be fasting and it's more specific. Remember that the diagnosis of GDM or diabetes is based on a made-up number, a made-up cutoff. All these different made-up cutoffs of the blood sugar measurements at zero, one, and two hours, you diagnose fewer people with gestational diabetes, and there doesn't seem to be a difference in outcomes. So if you do the one-step process, which is the two-hour fasting, 75-gram glucose, you pick up more patients 
but they probably have milder disease, so they're less likely to benefit from an intervention. So basically, you tell twice as many people that they have gestational diabetes and the stress that comes from that, but you don't have any difference in outcomes. So I don't know if you're going to agree with this, but I'm going to come down hard on if you're going to do some kind of screening, do the two-step screening, which is a one-hour glucose level after a 50-gram glucose challenge in a non-fasting state. So my bottom line will be slightly different. Bottom line. Pregnant women should get tested for gestational diabetes mellitus between 24 and 28 weeks, but we don't have high-quality evidence to say which method of testing is ultimately better. Paper six. All right, abstract number six. Association between individual primary care physician merit-based incentive payment system score and measures of process and patient outcomes. This is from December 2022 in JAMA. And one of my dear colleagues, when she retired, gave me a card that had this quote that was attributed to Albert Einstein. And it's, not everything that matters can be measured, and not everything that can be measured matters. So think of this as we go through this, (laughs) the MIPS payment incentive score. So in 2015, the United States Congress passed a law authorizing the merit-based incentive payment system. We're going to call it MIPS, which is designed to measure physician performance in four domains and reimburse accordingly. And the reason the Congress did this is because despite the fact that we say we have a quote-unquote free market health system in the U.S., the U.S. government and the state governments are still by far the largest purchasers of healthcare in the U.S. So they have a pretty strong sway in how healthcare is delivered. And so under MIPS, payment to physicians under Medicare could be adjusted plus or minus about 7% based on this system. And so four domains, quality, cost, improvement activities, and interoperability in the MIPS system. And it influences payments for hundreds of thousands of U.S. physicians. So does MIPS work? Does it improve quality of care? The authors designed a cross-sectional study of over 80,000 U.S. primary care physicians that participated in the MIPS program in 2019. So remember, a cross-sectional study doesn't look forward, it doesn't look back, it just looks at like what's happening right now. And this represented 3.4 million patients. And they reviewed the association between physician MIP scores, performance on five unadjusted process measures, six adjusted outcome measures, and a composite outcome measure. So what did they find? First of all, 86% of physicians had high MIP scores. That's greater than 75. It's out of 100. So most of us are doing pretty well. 8% of the physicians had medium MIPS scores. That's between 30 and 75. And then 6% of these physicians, wow, they must be awful physicians. They had low MIPS scores, less than 30. That was 6%. And so obviously the people who had the low MIPS scores must have been such worse doctors and their patients must have been having such terrible outcomes. So if you look at some process outcomes, Comparing the low MIPS to the high MIPS people, they did have worse diabetic eye exam scores, but it's not that different. 56 versus 63%. They had worse A1C screenings. Oh no, 85 versus 89%. They had worse mammography screening. 
but they had better influenza vaccination and better tobacco screening. So that seems like complete toss-ups between the low MIPS and the high MIPS. And then there were completely mixed reviews and most insignificantly different on patient outcomes like emergency department visits, hospitalizations. They were split and most of them were not different. And then it gets even crazier. 19% of the physicians with low MIP scores had composite outcome performance in the top quintile. 21% of physicians with high MIP scores had outcomes in the bottom quintile. And physicians with low MIP scores and the best outcomes compared for more medically complex and socially vulnerable patients compared with physicians with low MIP scores and poor outcomes. So the author's conclusion, this is a may or may not understatement. The MIPS program may be ineffective at measuring and incentivizing quality improvement among U.S. physicians. I think they should have said it just isn't effective. But anyways, right? I think that the sound engineers for PCMA need to come up with a sarcasm alert right. for when you, when you drop into that tone of, yeah, those low MIPS must be terrible physicians. I, there has to be some kind of whoop, whoop, I didn't whoop, expect sarcasm. it to come out that sarcastic, but I, I got on a roll there, I guess. Well, I, I hope people were able to pick up on your subtle tone. <laughs> alert, alert, sarcasm detected. So, you know, any differences that they observed were like, like tiny, yeah. you know, statistically maybe significant, but unlikely to be clinically significant. And this composite outcome is a totally made up statistic. It's like made up out of whole cloth. So, you know, I've never been a big fan of pay for performance. I think we should do the right thing because it's the right thing, not because somebody's dangling necessarily a carrot. Is it a big enough incentive? I mean, this whole idea of collecting and doing and documenting all this data collection, I find that it just makes doctors into expensive data entry clerks and chasing some dollars for performance. And some of those performance indicators, like, do we have good evidence that there's a large effect size if we do screen for it? Like tobacco screening. Yeah. And, you know, there's, we're checking so many boxes to try to chase these quality metrics. Yeah. we're just not there on on knowing how to, you know, for lack of a better word, how to grade doctors or systems on how they're doing. And, and before we implement things that are either thou shalt or here's, a, here's some money, shouldn't we know that it works prior to the implementation and that it's going to have an effect size? And will the intervention, like you're saying with MIPS, be better than any other system? Like, I, I really, That's I really crazy talk. frustrating. Yeah, I know, I know. You know, we constantly get ahead of ourselves with regards to implementing these programs and then trying to dismantle them after the fact is always such a challenge. Yeah. Bottom line. The Medicare incentive payment system score is not accomplishing what it was meant to accomplish. Not everything that matters can be measured and not everything that can be measured matters. Paper seven. Abstract number seven, indicators of questionable research practices were identified in 163,129 randomized control trials. Wow, there's a title that just says it all. The (laughs) Journal of Clinical Epidemiology 2022. So this study continues our advocacy for doing better research. The objective of this trial was to explore four quality indicators in randomized trials. 
And so let's go through those quality indicators. They searched all human randomized control trials published in PubMed from 1996 to 2017, looking for quality indicators. The risk of bias in randomization and blinding, that was the first thing. The second thing was modification in the primary outcome that were registered in trial registration records. So they, did they flip around that primary outcome? Did they modify that? The third thing was the ratio of the achieved versus the planned sample size. And finally, were there any statistical discrepancies? So those were the four things that they were looking for, the quality indicators. And when they searched the 160,000 randomized control trials, they found the first thing, the risk of bias for randomization had a median probability of 43% for the risk of bias. And for blinding of patients was 63%. So not great. Modification of the primary outcome, one in five studies, 22% modified their primary outcome. When they searched uh, for the median ratio of achieved compared to planned sample size, they found it was one, okay? And uh, the statistical discrepancies were found in 1.7% of publications. They did some, well, they looked at, you know, what was associated with this, with the demographics of the authors and the bibliometrics. And they found that there was a lower probability of bias for at least three out of four domains if there were a higher proportion of female co-authors. Okay. If it was a more recent publication. Okay. So we're, maybe we're doing better now in 2017 than we were in 1996. If they mentioned the consort. Okay. And so it's nice to see that thing at the front of a paper, the consort statement. And uh, higher impact journals did better. And in larger publishers. The risk of modifying the primary outcome was if the author was from a North American or Oceania. Okay, so um, that doesn't look good for us that we're swapping around primary outcomes over here. A higher H factor, you know, your impact factor for the lead author or senior author. So you were more likely to play around with that primary outcome. Of course. And uh, if there was more institutional involvement. Hmm. The sample size was achieved more often with a higher number of countries involved, and that makes sense. Maybe if you're casting the net wider and you've got multi-center, multinational study, you might be able to achieve your sample size as opposed to a single trial, single center trial where you may not. I mean, one of my EBM mentors said, if you ever want to make a disease rare, try to study it. You'll never find it. (laughs) And then the fourth thing was uh, less statistical discrepancy if the trial was registered. And I think that that has improved things but it hasn't eliminated the problem. Yeah. (laughs) When I first saw this, that they reviewed like over 100,000 papers, I was like, how did they do that? Did they take medical students? Like, what did they do? (laughs) They had robot reviewer software. So some guy just created this program that looks for all these magic words and then just, I don't know, went, drank a beer, hit enter, boop, and then came back in the morning and saw the results of his paper. Pretty cool. And you had a whole minion of electronic medical students doing it for you. Exactly. Robot. Yep. Bottom line. We need to be asking the right questions and using the right methods to ensure patients get the right care. Paper eight. Abstract number eight is comparing pharmacist-led telehealth care and clinic-based for uncontrolled blood pressure. This is the Hyperlink 3 Pragmatic Cluster Randomized Controlled Trial from Hypertension, December 2022. And I found a paper as I was reviewing this that I will put in the 
in review for May because it's fascinating. They It's a 2022 paper that updated the primary care workload. It's from Journal of General Internal Medicine. And basically it says that if I have 2,500 adult patients in my primary care practice in my panel, then it would require 7.2 hours per day to do just the chronic disease care. The preventive care would take 14 hours per day and a couple other things that adds up to a total of 26 hours per day. And how many days a week is that? Eight? <laughs> right, exactly. No vacation, no holiday, no CPD, nothing. Yeah, You're maybe just that's assuming there. Saturdays and Sundays are off, but either way, maybe. it's 26 hours per day, which <laughs> yeah. is crazy. And so one of the things that's been talked about in the primary care literature, and the authors talk about this, is maybe team-based care could lower this demand to a reasonable level. So maybe I don't have to take care of all my hypertensive patients. Maybe someone on my team can do it and can do a good job. And we know that hypertension is a big deal. It's a major challenge in our practices. It leads to worse cardiovascular and neurologic outcomes if it's uncontrolled. Only about one in four U.S. patients with hypertension have their blood pressure controlled. And there's a strong inequity based on race also for hypertension control. So a team approach could be an effective way to lower blood pressure and uncontrolled hypertension, but we really don't know what model of a team approach might be best because this team-based care organizations have not been compared directly. So these authors did a pragmatic cluster randomized control trial comparing two different interventions in adult patients with moderately severe hypertension. So that's over 150, over 95. And the two groups were clinic-based they use best practices face-to-face with physicians and medical assistants. And then that was compared to telehealth care using best practices, adding home blood pressure telemonitoring with home-based care and coordinated by a clinical pharmacist or a nurse practitioner. And the primary outcome was a DOE, systolic blood pressure over 12 months. They did do some secondary outcomes, which were change in patient-reported outcomes. So those are patient-oriented, and that was over six months. And so they had over 3,000 patients in 21 primary care clinics. And so the results, only about a third of the patients met the protocol-specified follow-up, and only about 56% of patients completed the survey at baseline even. So the following of the patients was not great in this study, although they did do both an intention-to-treat analysis and a per-protocol analysis which really didn't show difference in the outcome. So it's hard to know how important that dropout is, but it does sort of call into question the study. Patients in both groups, they dropped their systolic blood pressure by about 20 points and their diastolic by about 10 points, and there was no difference between the groups. The telehealth care pharmacist patients, they had better self-reports for home blood pressure monitoring, rating their care highly, and reporting that their visits were convenient. So the the authors conclude that telehealth care that includes this extended team is an effective and safe alternative to clinic-based for improving patient-centered care for hypertension. We have a team of pharmacists in our office, in our teaching clinical office. They're amazing. So this is some evidence that their care is effective and safe for these disease-oriented outcomes. So I think their conclusions are a bit of an overstatement talking about safety and efficacy based on a short-term trial like this. I think they can say that there is no statistical difference and people liked it. Okay. Yeah. Bottom line. 
team-based care using pharmacists and telehealth may be considered for patients with poor hypertension control. Paper 9. Abstract number 9. Once weekly semaglutide in adolescents with obesity in the New England Journal of Medicine 2022. And so the objective of this trial was to determine the efficacy and safety of a once-weekly subcutaneous semaglutide plus lifestyle intervention among adolescents with obesity. So this was an industry-funded, multinational, double-blind, parallel group, randomized, placebo-controlled trial. For their population, the adolescents were age 12 to 18 years of age, with a BMI of at least in the 95th percentile, or also those in the 85th percentile with at least one weight-related coexisting condition. And participants had to have had at least one unsuccessful dietary weight loss effort to get into the trial. Now, everyone had a 12-week lifestyle intervention run-in phase. Oh, you love those run-in phases, don't you? (laughs) And maybe run-in phases would be good for people that um, are struggling with their weight. So having that with all these lifestyle changes, you know, we, we see these recommendations and they come up with a medicine, but the first recommendation is like, we still have to focus on the lifestyle changes. That's so important about eating healthy and living healthy. So they randomized them to a two to one ratio to receive a once weekly subcutaneous semaglutide, 2.4 milligrams or matching placebo for 68 weeks. The primary outcome was the percentage change in BMI. And then the secondary outcome was the reduction of body weight of at least 5%. The cohort had 201 adolescents with 10% or 21 of them who didn't complete the study. The mean change of BMI was 16% in the semiglutide and 0.6 with the placebo. And it was minus 16% from baseline. And actually the placebo went up 0.6. So the delta was 16.7%. Now, 73 or three quarters in the semiglutide group had a weight loss of 5% or more, with only 18% in the placebo group. And we've got to consider adverse events, and GI side effects was the greatest with semiglutide, then with placebo, and it was 62 versus 42%. But serious adverse events were reported in about the same amount in both groups, 10%. So this is another encouraging publication claiming an effective treatment for obesity. The effect size was large, with small differences in adverse events. We should be cautiously optimistic, given the past weight loss drugs that we've seen, and watch for rare side effects and long-term results. Additional skepticism is warranted, given the sponsor, Novo Nordisk. They designed the trial, oversaw the conduct of the study, and funded a writer to write the first draft of the manuscript. Yeah, number needed to treat two for 5% or more weight loss, although number needed to harm five for GI adverse effects. When these medications first came out, I wondered if the weight loss was all because of the nausea, but I think that's probably not the case anymore. This is actually, have you been prescribing these drugs and having trouble getting them at all, Ken, yet? There is a shortage and difficulty in accessing these medications in Canada. Yeah, so same with the US, the the GLPs have become so popular or there's some supply chain issue or whatever. There's actually one of uh, my colleagues was describing that there's like the patient was telling them about there's like Reddit threads or like Facebook groups about why now the people with diabetes can't get these medicines because all the people who want to lose weight who don't have diabetes are getting the medications. 
So they've become extremely popular for both indications. Yeah, there's been uh, difficulty accessing this medication. And I don't know if they're going to prioritize people with diabetes over people who want to use it for weight loss. It's a challenge. Bottom line. If you have children in your practice, you're likely to have patients with weight issues. And you may start seeing them ask for semaglutide. Paper 10. Abstract number 10. I wish I could tell you that we were going to close out with a, a nice, easy to understand light paper. So those of you that are still awake, you're going to have to bear with us a little bit here for this study. Oh, no, 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 they don't. I got a rant. I got a rant. Okay, good. I'll keep them awake. I better go fast if you're going to add your rant time then. <laughs> so this is even just describing, I'm going to have to just tell you the name of this paper. I'm going to do it in like fast voice mode. Comparison of amitriptyline supplemented with pregabalin, pregabalin supplemented with amitriptyline, and duloxetine supplemented with pregabalin for the treatment of diabetic peripheral neuropathic pain. Option DM, a multi-center double-blind randomized controlled crossover trial. <gasps> Yeah, exactly. From Lancet, August 2022. That was a mouthful. So the reason I picked this is we haven't looked at an overview of medications for painful diabetic peripheral neuropathy since 2015 on PCMA. So I thought it was time to inject some of that back into the discussion. And there is a 2022 American Academy of Neurology guideline update, which says with level B evidence that you should offer tricyclics, SNRIs like duloxetine, gabapentinoids, and or sodium channel blockers like carbamazepine to reduce pain. And then if it doesn't work, level B evidence says if you give one, you should try to switch to another. But we don't know what medication class to try first. We don't know if they should be used in combination. And so these authors come up with a slightly different question than this American Academy of Neurology, which says, you know, switch to a different agent. This says actually, well, what about combining the agents? And so they want to assess the effectiveness and tolerability of different combinations of first-line drugs for the treatment of diabetic painful neuropathic pain. So this is the option DM study, multi-center randomized double-blind crossover trial, which is actually, I think, pretty cleverly designed. Maybe your rant is that you will disagree, but we'll see. In patients with diabetic peripheral neuropathic pain, they have at least four pain on a scale of zero to 10 from 13 centers in the UK. And so the, even the authors call this study, quote, long and demanding. It's a very confusing study. So the participants were randomly assigned, ready for this? One to one to one to one to one to one to receive one of six ordered sequences of three treatment pathways. So number one, amitriptyline supplemented with pregabalin. Number two, Pregabalin supplemented with amitriptyline. Number three. And duloxetine supplemented with pregabalin. Each pathway lasted 16 weeks and then they crossed over. And in each one, talk about washout periods, monotherapy was given for six weeks in each of the 16 week treatment pathway. And only did they add the second one if there was suboptimal pain relief, their pain score was still greater than three. They titrated the meds to the maximum tolerated dose, which was 75 milligrams per day for amitriptyline, 120 milligrams per day for duloxetine, and 600 milligrams per day for pregabalin. I actually think those numbers are pretty important to remember if you're treating your patients, is that those are probably the maximum doses that you should use. And so the primary outcome was difference in seven-day average daily pain 
during the final week of each pathway, and there was no placebo group. 252 patients were screened. Only 140 of them were assigned. 130 started one treatment pathway, and only 84 of them completed at least two treatment pathways. So what are the results? At the week 16, scores decreased from a mean 6.6 at baseline to 3.3 in all three pathways. So patients in any one of these pathways went from pretty bad pain, 6 to 7 out of 10, to more like 3 to 4 out of 10. No difference between all those combinations, which I will not mention again. Patients on combination therapy had only slightly more improvement than those that were on monotherapy, 1 versus 0.2 in their differences. There was a huge dropout, but then they showed a table that said there was no measurable difference between the people that completed, which was 77, and the non-completers, which were 53. Very complicated table. And then the adverse effects were numerous, including especially fatigue in patients taking amitriptyline and or duloxetine. Not surprisingly, dry mouth and sedation in patients taking amitriptyline, and then dizziness in the patients taking pergabalin. So I have thoughts, but maybe I should hear your thoughts first, Ken. Are you ready for this? Okay. Yeah, I'm ready. Strap in PCMAers. <laughs> um, my biggest problem with this was the lack of placebo group. And they justify this in their discussion by using an argument from authority. They say that this has been approved by lots of regulators. They also use an argument from popularity. These drugs are used all over the world. And so when I see arguments like that, you know, it's a short form for saying, you know, we should be doing this. I care more about the primary literature. And so they say, there's a large body of evidence of the efficacy from randomized control trials, systematic reviews, and Cochrane reviews. And they give references. They reference the TCA, and there was one randomized control trial, and it was small. Pregabalin, one randomized control trial reference. SSRIs, one randomized control trial. So maybe our idea of what a large body of evidence is for each individual thing is different than just, you know, a small randomized control trial or a randomized control trial. But I pulled their systematic review that they linked to. And the conclusions from the systematic review, you'll love this. You know, this is, again, claiming that there's a large body of evidence of the efficacy. So the systematic review in its interpretation of their systematic review says, quote, Limited efficacy, large placebo response, inadequate diagnostic criteria, and poor phenotyping profiling probably account for modest trial outcomes and should be taken into account in future studies, end Mm. of quote. So that doesn't seem like, you know, there is a problem in publication where the references don't necessarily say what the people who are referencing them say it says. And so I think this is one of those cases. And then they didn't even have a citation for the Cochrane reviews. So there's no references to the Cochrane reviews when they're claiming that uh, these things are happening. So that makes me more skeptical. And then finally, I get down to, uh, you know, let's take a look at the financial conflicts of interest for the authors. And it's an extensive list. I think this is a very difficult and challenging condition to treat. I'm not saying don't treat it. I'm just saying that um, let's not overinterpret the evidence and consider that we don't have a large body of evidence of at least what I would consider robust efficacy. Yeah, and we definitely have, so I think there's, like you said, 
a consensus on, you know, probably what medicines to start with. Sure. And I actually am like the fact that they didn't include gabapentin. I think it's has the number needed to treat and number needed to harm for gabapentin are like almost exactly the same, like eight or something. And so I think any of these three medications may be worth trying if that's the decision that your patient makes. This trial certainly doesn't tell me if, like the American Academy of Neurology says, if it doesn't work, switch to the other one versus adding a second one. We definitely don't know which of those methods is the best. And, you know, honestly, maybe depending on how bad my pain is, I'd rather have neuropathic pain than some of the side effects that these drugs come with. And so there's also reasonable evidence for capsaicin, mindfulness, Tai Chi. So maybe those things should be tried before medications. Yeah. And I I like that, you know, you're not endorsing or advocating for a pill for every ill. You know, maybe there are other non-pharmaceutical things that can be done. Absolutely. Bottom line. Amitriptyline, pregabalin, and duloxetine may be reasonable options for diabetic peripheral neuropathy pain, and combinations may add slight benefit, but watch the side effects and be sure to individualize the therapy. There you go. There's your April 2023 PCMA. I hope you enjoyed it. We went a little long that time. We were having yeah. so much fun. Lots of <laughs> lots of ranting. Oh, lots of screening in this one and lots of talking about maybe the philosophy of science and doing better research. We look forward, though, to uh, coming back with 10 more in May. We'll talk to you next time. I think I can sum this all up. Summary. All right. Welcome back, everyone. Back for the summary. In case you didn't get a chance to listen to everything or in case you are already back chomping at the bit for some spaced repetition, here is the summary. And of course, we start with PCMA. PCMA, Article 1. And I'm up first with paper number one, five-year outcomes of the Danish cardiovascular screening trial in the New England Journal of Medicine, October 2022. This was a multi-center parallel group RCT of Danish men aged 65 to 74. They compared all cause mortality in those who underwent advanced cardiovascular screening with ABI, ECG, stress tests, and CTs for coronary calcification scores. Luckily for publicly funded healthcare systems out there, there was no difference in all-cause mortality between those screened and those not screened, but this was a very focused population group, and we cannot necessarily generalize the results to other folks. But it does seem to point to a trend that more advanced screening isn't going to be that helpful for this particular group of problems. Paper 2 was utility of the ages and stages questionnaire to identify developmental delay in children aged 12 to 60 months. A systematic review and meta-analysis from JAMA Pediatrics, October 2022. So this paper was a systematic review and meta-analysis of the ages and stages questionnaire, the ASQ. So that's the questionnaire that parents will fill out in the waiting room before their child's well baby visit, and it pertains to the child's development. So it looks at the main developmental spheres, uh, you know, gross motor, fine motor, language, social, that sort of stuff. So this study looked at how well this questionnaire actually performed in, in the real world. And what the authors found was that the ASQ is pretty good at picking up really severe delay. And on the other side of that, if the child doesn't have any delays on the questionnaire, it's pretty good at saying, yeah, they actually don't have any severe delays. 
However, it's based on some pretty low level of evidence. Paper 3. Informed Health Choices Essays 3.2 Expected Advantages Should Outweigh Expected Disadvantages in the Journal of the Rural Society of Medicine 2022. This was one essay in a series of essays that discussed the use of evidence to make decisions, and it had five main takeaways which you need to check out. But the overall gist of the paper is that potential benefits should outweigh potential harms of any treatment, and you will want to consider the severity of your patient's symptoms, along with their personal values and goals, when offering up possible treatments. Okay, paper number four, Association of Direct Acting Antiviral Therapy with Liver and Non-Liver Complications and Long-Term Mortality in Patients with Chronic Hepatitis C. It's from JAMA Internal Medicine, December 2022. So this was an interesting paper. The authors looked at a large cohort of patients with hepatitis C and wanted to know if treatment of hepatitis C with these kind of newer antivirals, if that was associated with any virological response and if there were any morbidity and mortality differences. So it was a retrospective study, a really large cohort of more than 200,000 patients with hepatitis C, and it compared those who were treated versus those who were not. So those who were treated with these newer, again, these newer direct antivirals had much better outcomes in terms of their virological response, but also a benefit in terms of their morbidity and mortality from both liver and and non-liver associated complications. So these newer hep C antivirals really look like a game changer. Paper 5. One step compared with two-step gestational diabetes screening and pregnancy outcomes, a systematic review and meta-analysis in obstetrics and gynecology, November 2022. This systematic review and meta-analysis looked at four studies that covered 25,000 patients and found that there was no difference in rates of large for gestational age babies between a group that was screened with one-step GDM testing and another group screened with two-step GDM testing. Steve feels that two-step testing is better as it is more specific and doesn't require fasting, but if you have the option in your area, talk to your patient about what they prefer. Paper number six was Association Between Individual Primary Care Physician Merit-Based Incentive Payment System Score and Measures of Process and Patient Outcomes. It was from JAMA 2022. So it's basically a way to compensate physicians on certain metrics and performance instead of kind of the usual fee-for-service or like how many patients you have in your practice. So this study is set up to determine if physicians who have higher MIPS scores, does that equate to better outcomes for their patients? So the authors looked at more than 80,000 primary care physicians in the U.S. who participate in this MIPS program and over 3.4 million of their patients. And they looked at a whole whack of different outcomes, but by and large, there did not appear to be any meaningful difference in patient-oriented outcomes if the physician had a higher MIPS score versus those who had lower scores. Paper 7. Indicators of questionable research practices were identified in 163,129 randomized controlled trials in the Journal of Clinical Epidemiology, December 2022. This study reviewed all treatment-based human trials published between 1996 and 2017 and found an alarming trend in questionable research practices being included in our medical literature, from North American research papers being more likely to modify their primary outcomes to higher rates of bias in study groups with fewer female co-authors. So remember that when study designs can be manipulated, interpretations can be biased and results can be fudged. So stay skeptical. Paper number eight was comparing pharmacist-led telehealth care and clinic-based care for uncontrolled high blood pressure. The Hyperlink 3 Pragmatic Cluster Randomized Trial, it was from Hypertension in December of 2022. So 
we're really busy, right? We're being pulled in so many different ways. There's just never enough time in the day to deal with everything that's going on. So why not offload some aspects of management to other team members? So for example, like in this paper, having a nurse practitioner or a pharmacist do telemedicine to help treat hypertension, right? Sounds like a great idea. So this study was a cluster randomized controlled trial where they compared patients who received traditional blood pressure management from their physician in an office-based setting versus those who received virtual or telehealth care that was led either by a nurse practitioner or by a pharmacist. So there's over 3,000 patients in the study, and their primary outcome was blood pressure reduction. And there was no difference in blood pressure reduction between the two groups. So whether it was a traditional office-based physician who was doing it or this sort of telehealth led by a nurse practitioner or pharmacist, there was really no difference in blood pressure reduction. So basically, this team approach is a fantastic option, in my opinion. Paper 9. Once Weekly Semaglutide in Adolescents with Obesity in the New England Journal of Medicine, November 2022. This study compared weight loss in obese adolescents who received once-weekly semaglutide versus placebo and found that after 68 weeks of injections, there was a mean change in BMI of approximately 16% compared to zero in the control group. Now, the study was industry-funded, so we need to interpret this with a pinch of salt, but it does seem to offer a glimmer of hope for the treatment of severely obese adolescents. Okay, paper number 10, comparison of amitriptyline supplemented with pregabalin. Pregabalin supplemented with amitriptyline and duloxetine supplemented with pregabalin for the treatment of diabetic peripheral neuropathic pain, the option DM trial. A multi centered, double blind, randomized crossover trial. It was from The Lancet and it was from August of 2022. So, as the name suggests, this was a fairly complicated crossover randomized controlled trial. Compared different combinations of amitriptyline, pregabalin, and duloxetine for painful diabetic neuropathy. The primary outcome was reduction in pain. And the boys had several gripes with this study, so you can go back and listen to all of their all of their issues with it. But the bottom line here is that all three of these medications are valid options for painful diabetic neuropathy. Combining them may, and may is doing a lot of heavy lifting in this sentence, so combining them may provide some extra benefit compared to monotherapy, but you really need to be cognizant of adverse effects. So that wraps it up for PCMA. What else did we have on the show this month, Adrian? It's Reviews and Perspectives with Dr. Hobart Lee. So Hobie and Heidi sat down for a chat about uh, common reasons for vaccine hesitancy and also how to approach patients and their parents who are vaccine hesitant. There was a lot of good tips that we could talk about for hours here, but here's a few that I found really helpful. So first off, be respectful. Don't shame the patients. Don't get angry. Try and hear them out and try and hear what their concerns are. Try and avoid politics, like avoiding vaccine mandates and that sort of stuff, and just focus on the individual. This may require a multi-pronged approach. We may need to get, you know, religious leaders, community leaders, public health, primary care providers all on board to help address it. Now, a big challenge are the patients who are deep into conspiracy theories. So realistically, these patients are going to take some time to come around, set reasonable expectations, don't expect them to change their minds overnight. And then finally, we can be accommodating if a patient or the parents are saying they only want to get, you know, the one vaccine and would rather not get the other ones right now. I mean, that's fine. It's uh, something is better than nothing. And then maybe if they see that they get the vaccine and there's no other side effects, then maybe down the line, they'll be more willing to get some other vaccines. Yeah, I really like this approach. It was very sort of straightforward and common sense and try and take some of the emotion out of the discussion. The Generalist. 
Then on The Generalist this month, Penny Wilson and I had a chat about cord prolapse. This possibility of a prolapsing umbilical cord scares me anytime that someone is in labor, but particularly when I'm working in a remote hospital without obstetrics or surgery, because it might mean I'm holding a presenting part off a cord for many, many hours, like in an ambulance or a plane. But of course, Penny's awesome, calm, and practical approach to the topic is a huge help to anyone who's nervous about this issue, regardless of where you practice. She reminds us that we can use gravity to help by tipping the stretcher into Trendelenburg position, and we can have warm, wet towels in the hand you are using to lift the presenting part off the cord in an effort to keep that cord warm. You'll still need to get the mum to an OR as soon as possible, but Penny gives us a great approach for dealing with the cord in the meantime. Fever in the Returning Traveler And then on Fever in the Returning Traveler, this piece was a two-part with Aisha Khatib and myself. Aisha has a special interest and expertise in travel and tropical medicine, so we were very lucky to have her join us for this topic. I can't accurately summarize all of the different infections that can cause fever, but here are some of the highlights of the pieces. Remember that we are seeing people travel again after those initial lockdowns of the COVID pandemic, so not every fever is COVID. Don't forget to ask about travel in the previous year. And once you find out that they have traveled, Ask about the patterns of the fever, ask about associated symptoms, and be sure to ask lots of details about where they went and what they did while they were traveling. This is the time to get nosy. I don't get it. Back to basics. Oh, got it. Wait, lost it. On the urgent care piece this month, Gita and Mel talk about sinusitis. So this was a great overview of a very common problem. Most of the time, sinusitis is caused by viruses, and there's not a whole lot to do for it. Bacterial sinusitis is more likely if the patient has worsening symptoms after initial improvement, if they have purulent nasal discharge, if they have severe facial pain, or symptoms that are going on for greater than 10 days. There's really no role for imaging for the vast majority of cases, unless, of course, you're suspecting complications in which a CT scan is the way to go. Now, treatment for uncomplicated viral sinusitis is basically time, but uh, symptomatic management with Tylenol, anti-inflammatories, nasal sinus rinses, decongestant. That sort of stuff. For patients with possible bacterial sinusitis, you can consider antibiotics. And first line here is amoxicillin or amoxclav or doxycycline in panallergic patients. And remember to keep your eye out for those rare but severe complications like periorbital or orbital cellulitis, osteomyelitis, brain abscesses, and meningitis. Rural medicine talks. And then on rural medicine this month, well, I had a patient who presented with. You know, epigastric, right upper quadrant, bit of left upper quadrant, biliary colic type pain. It was a bit of a medical mystery. He kind of got worse and worse. And it turns out that it wasn't the type of stone that I was expecting, causing all those problems in his poor old abdomen. And that's it. I cannot believe that Right on Prime for April 2023 is already done, which means 2023 is already one third over. There's that song, you know, which I can't really sing, but you know, it goes, time keeps on ticking, ticking. I don't think it's ticking, actually. Going? Passing? Into the future? I think it's Steve Miller. Anyway. Indeed. So while Cardi carries on with her midlife crisis over there, singing to herself, don't forget that along with your Right on Prime subscription, you can also have access to everything MRAP, Urgent Care, as well as the entire online emergency medicine textbook, Nornos Corpendium. And after you're done sorting through all of those offerings, it'll be May and time for another Right on Prime. So thank you for joining me to co-host Adrian and to everyone out there. Keep doing what you do because what you do matters. Matters.